Hey, Deserved Listeners, today's episode is about procrastination. I get a lot of questions about procrastination, emails, and during my YouTube live Q&As, people asking about it. So I thought I would do a deep dive on procrastination. There's a lot to say. Uh, I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings about procrastination, and often people will just say, you know what, just don't be lazy. You need to use your willpower. Well, it is way more complicated than that. And a lot of our simplistic notions about procrastination and how to get things done will actually keep us in a cycle of procrastination. In this episode, this is going to be a patron-only episode, by the way. Uh, this episode, I'm going to go over the definition of procrastination, the prevalence rates a little bit. I'm going to talk about the typology or the different types of procrastination. We're going to talk about the coping techniques. This is a very important part of this lecture is that there are different ways in which people will cope maladaptively with their procrastination and perpetuate it. And then I'm going to talk about the many, many factors according to research and according to my clinical experience that are involved in procrastination. That's kind of the beat of this lecture is all the various causes and none of the causes are laziness or lack of willpower. Um, I'm going to talk about treatment, but mainly I'm going to, at the very end, I'm going to talk about how to avoid procrastination. There's a lot of different things you can do, and they're basically based on the factors that we're going to get into. All right. Well, that is what I'm going to talk about. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you have been procrastinating about becoming a patron of the podcast, do it now. But you don't have to use your willpower because that's not really a thing. And it's not because you're lazy. There's usually just some sort of barrier to some sort of like issue of organization which we'll get into, but anyway, become a patron of the podcast and you can listen to the rest of this episode. Do it now. Join us. All right. Welcome to the patron zone patrons. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. Uh, okay. Let's first talk about the negative effects of procrastination of which there are many, according to research, you, uh, procrastination can lead to, well, first off, what I'll say is that there's two different literature topics when it comes to procrastination. One is academic procrastination, which really encompasses a lot of the, a lot of the research literature involves academic procrastination. I think because there's a lot of college students who are procrastinating and their professors are upset at them. And a lot of research happens at universities. And so I think that's why. Uh, because when I think of procrastination, I don't think of academic procrastination. I just think of regular life procrastination. Like um, you need to organize your garage or you need to get your computer files in order or you need to... I don't know, do your taxes or something. Uh, that's usually what I think of. But for some reason, it's that's not usually what's discussed in the academic literature. Um, but negative effects of procrastination, according to research, are poor school performance and poor work performance, which, of course, makes sense. If you're procrastinating at school or at work, your performance is going to go down. Another negative effect is always feeling like something is hanging over your head in a bad way. I've seen this clinically many, many times. There are people who perpetually procrastinate. The other thing I should say from the onset is there seem to be a, a, what, what we might call chronic procrastination. Everyone procrastinates to some extent, right? 
but there's a percentage of people, which I, it's, it seems to be around 20% of people, which is a lot of people who suffer from chronic procrastination that negatively affects their life in a pretty profound way. It's not the DSM, but, but it, you know, very well could be eventually. Um, and uh, for people who are chronically procrastinating, they will pretty much always feel like something is hanging over their head in a bad way. And I know what that is a little, I think, again, I think all of us can have, uh, you know, those, those experiences, right? When our to-do list is really long and we're just like, oh, that thing's hanging over my head. I, I, I want to complete that thing, but I don't want to do it because I'd rather do something fun. Um, but chronic procrastinators will have this all day long as, you know, when they stop to think it's like, boom, all these things come flooding into their mind about like, well, you haven't done that. You haven't done that. Another aspect of chronic procrastination is beating yourself up. A lot of people who procrastinate will shame themselves and, you know, put themselves down. Also, chronic procrastination can reduce your mood, can make you depressed and demoralized, can increase stress, can make you feel guilty, can lead to relationship problems, right? If you're procrastinating on a task that your spouse wants you to do or your friend wants you to do, or even just procrastinating about reaching out to a friend, that can cause problems in relationships. Never feeling satisfied with your life. People who chronically procrastinate, in my clinical experience, are never happy with where they're at because when they stop and think about things, they're like, well, but there's those other things that I haven't gotten done yet. Um, it can lead to sleep problems and to health problems, which, which might kind of surprise you. Research shows that people who chronically procrastinate have more health problems and more insomnia. Um and these negative effects can cause people to procrastinate even more because when you feel ashamed, you might procrastinate more. And when you procrastinate more, you feel more ashamed. Also, procrastination can lead to inertia, meaning that it's hard to get things going. It's hard to start because you're like, well, it's just going to take so long to do and I don't have the time or what if I don't really complete the task or what if I fail, you know, all those kinds of things get in the way. And procrastination can actually lead to depression and depression can lead to procrastination because of lack of motivation, right? So at the beginning here, I just want to talk a little bit about my own experience with procrastination. I have, I would say that I'm not a chronic procrastinator. I'm not generally a procrastinator. There are times when I feel like I'm putting things off. Ironically, I've been putting off this episode for a long time. <laughs> now, some of you might be old enough listeners that you remember, we've already done an episode on procrastination, but Berto and I got into a fight. <laughs> it wasn't a terrible one. Well, maybe a more accurate uh, description is I basically berated Umberto for uh, the way he was thinking. I don't remember it very well. I don't think Berto remembers it either very well, but we posted it and it wasn't that long ago. Maybe it was just a year or two ago that we posted it. And the listeners were kind of disturbed <laughs> by, by, by the way, uh, you know, uh, this isn't really the purpose of this episode, but for those of you who don't know uh, and haven't been listening long enough, I absolutely know that sometimes I can come across to Berto in a mean way. Absolutely. Uh, Birdo bounces back pretty quick, but that doesn't excuse it at all. And he's the first person to say it's not a big deal, but I think he's actually just prone to saying that to be nice to people and to let me off the hook. Um, yeah, there there are times I, I I could go into the reasons, various reasons why I think it happens between me and Birdo, because um, he has kind of like a passive way of jabbing at me sometimes that 
can get under my skin and I'm not as more, I'm not as controlled (laughs) with my mirth. Uh, And so I'll come across as kind of a know-it-all jerk face. And um, anyway, so maybe the worst example of that was on this procrastination episode that we made a while back. And from my memory, what happened was Berto was talking about procrastination, his own procrastination, but he, he, in, in my uh, assessment of him, which, you know, very well could have been wrong. I was perceiving or interpreting his language around his procrastination as being unaware of his issue. And so I was trying to confront him on his issue to demonstrate that procrastination can be a mindset that people can get into and that making excuses for yourself can actually perpetuate the the procrastination and harm yourself and, and people around you. And either I was wrong and or he wasn't ready to hear that. And we basically just argued about it. And it just came, if I remember right, it basically just came down to me telling him that he was unconsciously lying to himself and I wasn't being nice about it, if I remember right, (laughs) which I'm laughing about. It's not a good thing. It's a terrible thing. And um, so anyway, uh, we took, if I remember right, we just took down the episode because it was an ugly episode. I don't don't remember. We've done so many episodes, so I kind of forget. Then, like a year later, people on the YouTube live Q&A would ask things like, um, you know, you should do an episode on procrastination. And then I would say, um, I would say, yeah, yeah, we did a deep dive on it. And then my wife would tell me, no, no, that it's not up anymore. And then fast forward another six months and uh, someone's like, you should do a deep dive in procrastination because, you know, it's a pretty common topic that people want to talk about. And so I added it to the list and I had forgotten all about the fact that we'd done one in the past. And so I, I start researching procrastination and I find in my, I have notes already on procrastination and I, I'm like, what is going on? And I open this file and it's this deep dive on procrastination. It's all my notes. And I'm like, oh my God, I took, so this is me forgetting we did it in the past. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I did a full research deep dive on procrastination and never recorded the episode because I, you know, went to the list of episodes and searched for it and it wasn't there. And I'm thinking, I I developed these notes years ago and we never did the episode. So I start kind of going through the notes again to refamiliarize myself. And then I go to my wife and I'm like, the craziest thing happened. Like I I found these notes of this episode of procrastination that I never did. And she says, no, Kirk, you did record an episode with Berto and you guys got in a fight. So we took down the episode (laughs) and I'm like, oh, I'm losing it. You know, my memory is just going. Um, But anyway, so then I said, "Okay, well, I got to redo the episode and maybe I'll just do it without Berto so I don't get triggered or something. And I've been kind of procrastinating about doing this episode for a while. <laughs> it's been on my to-do list for, I don't know, a, a couple of months or so. Um, so I'm getting around to it. Um, so this is all to say that I know what it's like to procrastinate. You know, there are other things on my list. Like I have this, to, I have this, like I have this very elaborate to-do list, which I'll get into later as, as it actually helps me with my procrastination, but I have this, uh, column of to-do list items that are things that I might literally not ever get to, like 
um, I, I want to write all these various books and I want to do more family history, uh, um, uh, investigation, like genealogy, that kind of stuff. And, uh, these, some of these things have been on my, like I, some of you know that I started a book on grief a long time ago. I started this book in 2014, I think. And I was really intent on finishing. I spent uh, hours and hours. I spent probably a couple years, like maybe four full days a month. Because if, every, if any of y'all have ever written a book before, it just takes forever. You, especially an academic book where I'm looking up all the research. You know, I can't just like ramble. I have to look up the research and summarize and organize. And you could say that I've been procrastinating on finishing this book for seven years. This thing has been on my to-do list. And the book is like half done. It's not like I just started it and put it aside. Like it was, or it was like almost like 80% done and I'm procrastinating. So on some level, I get that. On the other hand, I think 99% of the time I am not a procrastinator. When I put something on my list to do, like I do it. And I, I don't have a lot of things in my life that I will allow get in the way of me getting my, getting my stuff done. I love crossing things on my, off my list and I tend to get a lot of things done in my day. Um, I I have faults, but procrastination is not one of them. Uh, I don't know what it is about that. And maybe we'll get into maybe myself and interfacing with some of the factors later, but, um, yeah. Okay. So Let's talk about definitions. So there are many definitions. For example, Schra et al. 2007 uh, proposed three criteria for a behavior. Uh, so uh, they defined procrastination as being uh, pr- counterproductive, needless, and delaying. Meaning that you're delaying something. It's needless to delay it. And it's counterproductive to you. So that's one definition. But I actually read many, many definitions in the clinical literature. And no definition to me was very complete. And so I compiled the following definition. A a voluntary and irrational tendency to delay required tasks, despite knowing that the delay will result in negative consequences, such as negative emotions, for example, stress, guilt, depression, anxiety, and or negative results, for example, poor evaluations or disappointing others. Okay, so let's review this very long definition. So a voluntary tendency, meaning that you're doing it on purpose, because, you know, sometimes you can delay something, but it's not voluntary because you're sort of forced into it, right? So it's a voluntary tendency to delay and an irrational tendency to delay because you can voluntarily delay something like for example with my book on grief one rational reason as to why i'm not finishing the book is because for me to finish the book it it could take me years of you know full days where i'm just sitting down and reading and writing that book so and i only have so many so many hours left on this planet. And is that what I want to do with that time? Because I could be doing other things. Like I could be working on the podcast. I could be doing other deep dives that I want to get to. Also, do we really need another book on grief? Because there's a lot of books on grief. So there's some rationality to me delaying. Most notably, I want 
more time for deep dives. If I worked on my book on grief, it would mean I probably wouldn't be able to get into deep dives on this podcast as nearly as much. And is that a good cost benefit analysis? You know, I don't really think so. And that was the decision I made a long time ago. So uh, it's, it's not a, it's not irrational, irrational. So to procrastinate, according to my definition, it has to be irrational, meaning that it doesn't really make a lot of sense to your life. It's not a, the cost benefit analysis does not really work out. So it's a voluntary and irrational tendency to delay required tasks, despite knowing, and this is important, you have to, you know, you have to be purposely delaying, despite very well knowing that delaying this task will result in negative consequences, such as negative emotions, like stress and guilt. Because, you know, when you're procrastinating, you have the stress of like it's hanging over your head or depression, anxiety, or guilt, like, oh, I'm letting that person down. And or other negative results like poor evaluations or disappointing others, you know, getting kicked out of school, having your friends not like you, that kind of thing. So voluntary, irrational, you're delaying something despite knowing that you're going to have negative consequences down the line. And that's part of the irrationality of it, right? That you very well know that waiting until the last minute or not doing it right now will incur negative things. And you have the time to do it right now, but you you just don't do it um, because of some reason, which we'll get into later. Okay, so actually I have a measure or a survey here that we can all take and measure how much of a procrastinator we are. So just follow along with me, I'll take it, and then you can follow along. So on a scale from one to five, uh, answer the following questions, with one being never and five being always. I delay tasks beyond what is reasonable. So one being never, five being always. I would say that I am a two on that one. The next question is, I often regret not getting to tasks sooner. I would say for that, that's a one. I don't ever have run into that. The next question, there are aspects of my life that I put off, though I know I shouldn't. Uh, you know, I'm going to give that one a one as well. I don't think that happens to me. The next question is, I put things off so long that my well-being or efficiency unnecessarily suffers. You know, I'm going to say that's another one for me. Uh, and the next question, at the end of the day, I know I could have spent time better. Definitely that is me. I would say I would give myself a maybe a four on that one. Uh, because, I don't know, I just, I, I have so many things I want to get done in a day. <laughs> and the last question when I should be doing one thing, I will do another. You know, I'm going to give myself a two because I definitely have that. All right, so scoring this up, I have a six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. That is my let's see, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, so a rough score on this is that if you're below twelve, like I am, because I'm eleven, you are in the bottom ten percent of procrastinators. And then if you are 13 to 15, you're in the bottom range as well, but you're not in the very bottom. If you're between 16 and 20, your score is 16 to 20, you're in the middle. If you're between 21 to 24, you're above average. And if you're, your score is 25 to 30, you're in the top 10%. So even though I answered some of the questions indicating that I procrastinate sort of, I'm still uh, in in the lower 10% range. So you can 
uh, just score yourself in that way. I don't know if this is a standardized test, so you know, just take those results with a grain of salt. But that should give us an indication of what is considered to be the qualities of someone who is a chronic procrastinator. So someone that would answer, you know, yeah, very often I delay tasks beyond what is reasonable. And I often regret not getting to things sooner. And yes, there are aspects of my life that I put off, though I know I shouldn't. I put things off so long that my well-being or efficiency unnecessarily suffers. At the end of the day, I know I could have spent time better. And when I should be doing one thing, I will actually do another thing. So that kind of gives us an indication of what procrastination is exactly in the clinical literature. Okay, so let's look at rates. Well, it's hard to measure the rates of procrastination because everyone procrastinates and the definitions of procrastination varies. And some people are in situations where they have a lot of reasons to procrastinate and a lot of opportunities to procrastinate. Um, So if you take like a student, then they're in a constant revolving door of deadlines. And so procrastination might be something that is Uh, they're doing all the time. You know, a typical graduate student, or I'll just talk about myself. When I was in graduate school, there was always something that I was putting off, whether it was reading some book that I was supposed to be reading or writing a paper I was supposed to be writing or doing some kind of long-term project I was supposed to be working on or, or starting my dissertation. You know, there was always something that I wasn't doing that I was supposed to be doing. So you could say graduate school, you're in a constant state of procrastination. So, does that compare to someone who is who has like four deadlines in a year and they always procrastinate those four deadlines, but uh, they're in, normally in a state of non-procrastination? So how, how do we really compare those two people given that their lifestyles are so different? One, procrastination is, an, is endemic, and the other one, there's really not an opportunity to procrastinate. But it seems as though... As I was saying earlier, that about 20% of people, of adults worldwide, not this, not just the United States, seem to suffer from ongoing or chronic procrastination. But when we look at students, about 50% of students suffer from ongoing harmful procrastination. Again, th- there's a difference between, mm, you know what, I should probably start that paper early because that'll help me to finish it early so I can actually go out of town that weekend. That's different from uh, procrastinating and turning in the paper late or procrastinating and not paying your rent on time or procrastinating about paying your taxes. Like a a pretty common feature of someone who are not not common, but a good indication of a chronic procrastinator is someone who always pays their taxes late. And I cannot relate to this. It's always kind of driven me crazy when I learn about people like that is how can you pay your taxes late every single year when it's the exact same day every single year? (laughs) You have 365 days to prepare for that eventuality, and you always are late with it. I I don't understand that. Um, I, I would get it if you were late once or twice, or there were circumstances that led it led you to be late like you were sick or something for the all the month of of march or something but there are people who are late every single time or there's a you know a time sheet that they're supposed to turn in at work and 
every time it comes up, they're scrambling at the last minute to fill it out. When it happens, it's it's routine. It's something that they have to do. And again, we'll get into the factors as to why this, what I'm going to call a pathology actually occurs, because I, I do think it is. I think it's a, it can become a pathology. I don't want to shame it by any means, but I do think it is a psychological condition similar to a personality disorder or generalized anxiety that I think we can classify as a pathology. Again, uh, it's rare. And so if I was to take a guess based on my gauge of of pathological procrastination, about 20% of people are on the spectrum and maybe like 5 to 10% of people are definitely within the category of pathological uh, procrastination in that as, as defined by their procrastination is irrational, it doesn't make any sense, and it causes a lot of suffering. And if they would just not procrastinate, so many things would go better for themselves and other people. Interestingly, prevalence-wise, in the past, like research in the 1970s, the prevalence of self-reported procrastination was just at 4%, whereas today it's about 20%. And this is interesting. And it doesn't surprise me when I think about lifestyle in the 70s. I'm old enough to remember the lifestyle of my parents when I was growing up in the 70s. There was very little to procrastinate. There were things to procrastinate, but uh, like just to give you an idea of what my parents' life was like in the 70s was my dad went to work the same time every day, 9 to 5. So there's, there's, no, um, there's no chaos there's no emails. Uh, there's no cell phones. There's no computers. Uh, we had one telephone in the whole house. We had one television in the whole house. Uh, there was very little uh, chores to do, really. You know, in today's world, particularly if you have kids, there are so many tasks that you have to accomplish. Whereas in the seventies, they just didn't care. <laughs> you know, like uh, I don't know. It was just sort of a more down-to-earth time, I suppose. And I, I suppose if you go back even further, it was even more down-to-earth. But anyway, in today's world, you've got emails and texts and you've got Facebook and you've your boss is bothering you on the weekend because they can text you. And there's all these little to-do list things and you've got to get the new thing because your kid has this project at school that they're working on. In the 70s, it just it felt like there were so fewer events like that. And you just had to do things that were in front of you. I don't know if I'm explaining it right. <laughs> but anyway, so at least according to self-report, you say, you know, do you have a problem with procrastination? In the 70s, 4% of people said yes, whereas today, 20% of people. I think another aspect to the past as opposed to the present was and I'm only gauging my idea of the past based on my lived experience, so I don't know if this is actually true, but it seemed like in the 70s, people were less about keeping up with the Joneses. They, I feel like in today's world, everyone thinks of themselves, or middle-class Americans, mainstream Americans, think of themselves as rich people. The, the, way, that in the, the, the way people think today about their lives is the way pe- rich people used to think about themselves in the 70s. Because in today's world, it's not uncommon for a middle-class person to think about themselves as like, okay, I'm a traveler. 
you know, I travel the world. I go, I travel, I go on fancy vacations. Whereas in the seventies, at least the people in my circle, no one went on fancy vacations. It was very unusual for people to even get on an airplane. Uh, that was a very fancy thing to get on an airplane. Uh, the kind of vacations that me and my family went on, it was all road trips. And it was almost always to Spokane because that's where my parents grew up. And that's where all our cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents lived. And so we would drive five, six hours across the state and stay with my uh, with all of our extended family. That was our vacation. And it was fun. But it was extremely low money. It didn't really cost a lot of money. And whereas today's average person, uh, you know, you have aspirations of going to Italy and Mexico. And, you know, I'm not saying everyone, but. So I think that when everyone uh, has that mindset of what I'm just going to call kind of a fancy mindset, fancy lifestyle, it adds a lot of details to your life that wouldn't be there otherwise. One, you have to earn all that money. So you got to work your way up the business or you got to really kind of engineer your career such that you earn enough money to do all those things. Then, uh, you know, like a vacation, just take one element of being a fancy person. You're traveling to Italy. Well, you've got to research where you're going. You got to look at YouTube videos. You've got to look at Google maps. You've got to book the hotel and the, and you've got to find, you got to go on, um, what do you call it? Uh, trip advisor. You got to find the perfect restaurant to go to. You got to talk to other people, you know, and that's a fun thing. So that there's a lot of elements that get added, a lot of to-do list items that get added to your life when you have a fancy life. Even aspects of like having pets these days. In the 70s, you got a pet, a, a dog or a cat. And you, you know, the dogs and cats, they, they pretty much just fended for themselves. You know, like our our dogs and cats that we grew up with, they they just came and went from the house. No leash, no collar. They just roamed around and when they came back home, we fed them, that kind of thing. Whereas today with animals, you know, especially with dogs, it's a constant to-do list with dogs, you know? And I'm saying, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's probably a good thing, but I find that the, if, if people from the seventies came to today, I think they would look at us and say, wow, you have a lot of things that you're doing. (laughs) Like, do you ever just relax? Do you ever just like, chill because my my impression of adults in the 70s were that there was a lot of chill time there was a lot of times where you know my parents would just be watching happy days with us or and my dad would just be like casually reading the newspaper and you know and maybe that's just through my eyes because i'm i'm like seven years old at the time and so uh, maybe I'm just silly, but I, I do think it does. It, it is a topic that I think we should be discussing in this lecture in that if you out there are suffering from chronic procrastination and you're beating yourself up about it, or you're just suffering from mild procrastination, and maybe that's one thing y'all should be thinking about for yourself is um, where are you on that spectrum? And also, by the way, I'm going to be doing a follow-up to this because I am very curious about your reaction to this lecture and your own experiences of procrastination. Please email in and put in the you know subject line, this is a follow-up to the procrastination episode, and I'll do a follow-up episode uh, soon. And uh, so I think it is something to think about because I'm guessing part of the utility of this episode is for you out there as a listener to evaluate how much of a procrastinator you are and why you're a procrastinator and how to fix it, right? It's possible for some of you listening that a 
portion of your procrastination can be solved by simplifying your life and not trying to keep up with the Joneses and not assuming that you have to be a fancy person with a bunch of fancy things. Because when you do that, it, it, you know, more money, more problems, right? (laughs) That kind of thing. Where if you uh, uh, aspire and materialism is a thing and you're always like another element of materialism is having a fancy house. And so having a fancy house requires one, you have to earn all the money to buy the thing. And then you've got to buy the thing, which is a whole set of tasks. I mean, you know, you got to get an agent, you've got to get the loan documents in place. And then, you know, you move and there's just a lot of elements in moving and buying a new house. And then once you're in the house, you've got to put all the nice fancy things in it and things are always breaking in the house. You got to, you know, you got to fix it. Whereas in the 70s, and I'm not saying the 70s were a wonderful time, but I'm just saying in terms of procrastination, why would only 4% of the U.S. population say they were suffering from procrastination? I think part of it is that people just were content with less, and they were content with just existing and hanging out with family members and friends, and as opposed to this constant need to uh, keep up with the Joneses. And so if you're a procrastinator, think about that. Think about how materialism and classism and being fancy is contributing to the overcomplication of your life that is adding so many deadlines and so many to-do list items that it's requiring procrastination just to cope with all of it, if that makes any sense. Okay, so let's talk about different types of procrastination. So one typology involves the three different categories, decisional, arousal, and avoidance. So decisional procrastination is the inability to make a decision with within a specific time period. For example, some people will put off making a decision. You know, there's too much pressure. I can't make a decision right now. So that's decisional procrastination. Another type is arousal procrastination. So these are people that will purposefully wait until the last minute because they're seeking a thrill. You know, there are people that will cram for a test, for example, because they're like, oh, I'm just, I work so much better under pressure. So that's arousal procrastination. They're, they're procrastinating to arouse themselves, essentially, not sexually. And the third type is avoidance procrastination. This is delayed motivation by a desire to prevent performance evaluation and fears. So this is more typical. uh, When people are referring to general procrastination, they're usually talking about avoidance procrastination. The second typology that is in the literature uh, is just two different types. One is adaptive and one is non-adaptive. So adaptive procrastination essentially is the... uh, you're just making a choice to put something off. And I actually wouldn't call this procrastination because this isn't irrational, right? Um, so it's it's totally normal to say, you know what, I think I have to put that on the back burner or, you know, I don't think that's really worth it. So I'm going to put put that off. And so that would that's what we'd call adaptive procrastination. Non-adaptive is, you know, all the things I was talking about earlier. And research shows that these people with non-adaptive procrastination are more likely to use moral licensing, meaning that if they complete a task, these people are more likely to say, well, I deserve to do these other things. Like, okay, I did the dishes, now I can drink alcohol and procrastinate all the other things that I needed to do. Okay, so let's talk about coping techniques. And uh, the, these are maladaptive, as I should put it in my mouth. maladaptive, because you can certainly cope with procrastination in a positive way. 
But this list is negative ways of coping. So one coping is that uh, is called you know is in the category of avoiding situations that re- might remind you of the task. So you have a chronic procrastinator and they have a list of 50 things that they're supposed to be doing. And whenever they're reminded of what they're supposed to do, they will actually avoid any trigger of reminders because they don't, they're overwhelmed. They don't know how to deal with the fact that these things are hanging over their head. Another maladaptive coping is to laugh it off. People will just make humor about it. Ha ha, you know, that's me. I'm a procrastinator. I'm lazy. I never get anything done. And so there's nothing wrong with making a joke about it, but there is something uh, self-destructive about laughing off and acting like you're okay with something that actually is negatively consequencing your life. Another maladaptive coping strategy for procrastination is using what they call downward counterfactuals. So let me uh, give an example of this because it's easier to give an example than to explain it. So let's say you feel a lump somewhere, you know, like you're, um, you're looking and you're like, oh, I have a lump in my chest or I have a lump in my arm and below your skin. And you immediately say, oh, I should probably go to the doctor for that. But you procrastinate and you avoid and you, you avoid looking at the lump. Maybe you're, you're scared or something. And eventually the lump, the lump gets so big, it's too big to ignore. And so you go to the doctor. Someone actually says, you got to go to the doctor. And so you go. And the doctor diagnoses you with cancer and you get treatment. And they tell you that you should have come in earlier and been evaluated because the treatment would have been less and uh, you actually are at risk of other problems because you waited so long. The chronic procrastinator will sometimes use a maladaptive coping technique called downward counterfactual in which they will say to themselves, well, at least I caught it before it got even worse. Instead of non-procrastinators that will say, oh, I made a mistake. I should have gone to the doctor sooner when I first found the lump. The next time I find a lump, I'm going to go to the doctor right away. Okay, so we see the difference. To the procrastinator, the chronic procrastinator, they might, not all of them, but they might, some of them will use what we call downward counterfactuals, which is to say, it's to kind of reword or re-narrativize the situation of just like, well, at least I went to the doctor, you know, looking on the bright side, instead of, I made a mistake by delaying, and I need to not do that in the future. So non-procrastinators will learn from their procrastination. They will learn, oh, I procrastinated, I need to not do that. And part of that has to do with the way they narrativize what happened. So we could almost see a factor, which I'll get into later here, involved in self-esteem. If you lack self-esteem, shaming yourself might be, or criticizing yourself might be very difficult because it might trigger you. Whereas if you have high self-esteem, you can withstand criticizing yourself and chastising yourself for waiting, right? So this can become this vicious cycle where you procrastinate, 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 you incur a consequence, you narrativize the situation so that it's actually fine, and then you end up procrastinating, you don't learn from your mistake, you procrastinate, procrastinate, it just goes on and on. Another maladaptive coping is doing something else to distract yourself from the task. This is very common. I do this when I'm procrastinating occasionally, I will do this absolutely. There will be some kind of, actually, so to use this uh, episode, this episode has been hanging over my head for a while. It's been on my to-do list. And 
I have had a lot of little tasks that I have been doing instead. Because, uh, you know, deep dive episodes are kind of laborious for me because I have to really go into the notes. I have to look up a lot of research. And I also have to schedule a good chunk of time where I have the energy and the time and I don't have any sort of obligations to my family and the, you know, things are quiet in the house and, you know, everything has to be perfect for hours and hours and hours in order for me to do a deep dive like this. And, you know, cause by the way, I, a lot of these episodes, I don't record in all kind of one sitting. I will record for a while, take a break and I'll start in a new section, you know, I'll edit things. And, and so for me to do a deep dive, it takes a long time and it's sort of daunting. It's like, Oh, you know, that deep dive is going to take 10 hours of really concentration, uninterrupted work. And uh, I, even though I could have done this episode a couple of weeks ago, probably I, it just felt a little overwhelming to me. And so I was doing all these little things, all these little podcast tasks. And I was like, well, I got to get to that procrastination episode. Now, the difference between me and a chronic procrastinator is eventually I got to this episode, right? And I'm doing it right now. Whereas a chronic procrastinator will uh, perhaps never do it. Um, and uh, some of you might experience that or have people in your life that you know that are like that. So it's very common, whether it's, uh, you know, sort of typical procrastination or pathological procrastination where people do little t- tasks. You know, and the joke is like... Um, uh, your people, uh, you know, some people love cleaning their house as a way of distracting themselves from something that they don't want to do. You know, like there's jokes like, my house is never cleaner than when I have something that I'm supposed to be doing otherwise. That kind of joke. Anyway, another maladaptive coping is to have irrational justifications, like saying, well, you know, most people procrastinate. I'm no different from anyone else. Or, what if I complete the task and it wasn't worth it? Those kinds of things. So there's a, there's a, there, for some, not all, but there, for some procrastinators, there's a lot of irrationality. And I think that's what I ran into with Umberto. I don't remember exactly what <laughs> the fight was. It was. I don't think it was a fight, but it, it was uncomfortable to the listeners. You know what I mean? And again, I'm sure 95% of it was completely my fault because I, you know, I have a tone and an attitude that I get into sometimes, which is, is, uh, completely not fair and unpleasant to listen to. But I think what I was motivated by with Umberto was I was running into his, what I was deeming to be irrational justifications for his procrastination. If I remember right, I was trying to motivate him to complete his CD that he's been working on or his album he's been working on uh, for the past, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Uh, his piano music. I I always sort of think about it as his Elton John, Billy Joel style of songwriting, because he's actually an amazing songwriter and an amazing pianist. And he really knows how to write a good piano song, but he rarely will publish it. And uh, he's been working on it for a long time. And I think we ran into him making justifications for it. And I was personally motivated to try to help him complete it. In fact, one of the things that he has said to me is, and he might have even said on this podcast, is that because uh, bo- him and I are musicians and we've both been musicians since we were teenagers. And uh, whereas I have published dozens and dozens of albums, whether on Spotify or otherwise, he has only published like two. And the very first one that he published was with me. And he will often say the only re- you know the only reason why I actually managed to publish that album was because 
you, Kirk, meaning me, uh, were, uh, you just went for it. You just wouldn't say, uh, you wouldn't give up. You, you really saw it through. Whereas all the other people I've worked with in the past and all the other projects I have, it, there's always something left to be done. And then I just never finish it. And so I think that's what I was running into. And, and it, I'll tell you just for me, maybe because I have this inner drive for constant completion of things like scratching off a to-do list I, I even have a computer screen, just to give you, an, this is a glimpse into like how to cope with procrastination is I have multiple computer screens, you know, hooked up to my desktop computer. I have one screen that pretty much most of the time is just dedicated to my to-do list. So I have a computer screen, a big one to, that's, you know, not my main computer screen that just displays my to-do list. So I, I am constantly referencing my to-do list to make sure that I'm getting all my things done. And when I see people putting things off, it, it frustrates me. I, I, I want them to complete the things that they want to complete. And uh, that's an emotional sort of problem that I have. Maybe I'm sort of fighting some inner demon for myself about that. And the last uh, maladaptive coping technique is irrationally blaming outside factors. Like, well, you know, I can't complete that because my dogs need to be fed and walked all the time, which is potentially irrational because, yeah, you need to feed and walk your dogs, but that doesn't mean you have no extra time to work on these other things. Or, you know, someone might say, you know, if the weather was better, I would have done it, that kind of thing. And again, maybe that is a legitimate excuse, but maybe these are um, ir irrational blaming of other things that you can uh, continue to procrastinate even though you don't have to. All right, so let's get into the meat of this lecture, which is the factors that lead to procrastination. There are many, and if you're following along at home trying to figure out why you procrastinate, you might want to take note of the factors that seem to resonate with you, because this is what I found to be true, that there are many, many roads to procrastination, and the key to overcoming it and treating it is identifying the specific factors and the specific flavors of each factor that result in procrastination. And there are many, so strap yourself in because there's a lot to get, go over here. The first one I want to talk about is the big five personality traits and how they correlate with procrastination. Procrastination is negatively associated with conscientiousness and agreeableness, positively associated with neuroticism, and doesn't seem, according to research, to be associated with extroversion and openness. So let's go into this a little bit more in detail. So conscientiousness is that personality trait that in, is involved, uh, that's characterized by being efficient and organized versus being extravagant and careless. There are many other ways of describing it, but that's one way of describing it. So, uh, for example, I am fairly conscientious in that I pride myself on being efficient and organized, and uh, I think about it a lot. I'm very on time, or at least I try to be, and I take a lot of pride in having things work well and be um, efficient and have things go off without a hitch, that kind of thing. I, and I become mortified when something goes wrong that I'm responsible for. This is why I didn't do very well as program director at my university because 
there are too many things to keep track of according to that job description, and I would lie awake at night just uh, worrying about all the loose ends and, and how nothing was being done in an efficient way because I had to manage you know, hundreds, dozens of people, dozens of professors and hundreds of students and work with other departments. Anyway, so I'm fairly conscientious, and so and whenever I take these tests, I'm, I'm pretty high on that scale, and thus I um, don't procrastinate very much. So if, if you're conscientious, you're much less likely to procrastinate. Why would that be? Well, uh, speculation from me is that if you're organized, then you're just more, you're just better able to figure out how to organize your life such that you can get things done. And you're more efficient. You know, you, you're, you plan better. Conscientiousness, another way of looking at conscientiousness is people that are good at planning things. They're, they have good executive function. They are able to uh, see the 12 steps that need to be uh, completed in order to get the task done. And this is the opposite of ADHD, which we'll get into later. So obviously, if you're conscientious and thoughtful and efficient and organized and a good planner, then you're going to be less likely to procrastinate. Procrastination is also negatively associated with agreeableness. So this, so conscientiousness makes sense. The rest of them are not quite as intuitive to me anyway. So we have agreeableness is negatively associated. So the more agreeable you are, the less likely you are to procrastinate. This one intuitively doesn't make a lot of sense because you think, well, you're very agreeable, so you're always doing things for other people, and so you don't think, do things for yourself. But let's uh, speculate here and, and just expand on what agreeableness means. Being agreeable means that you're friendly, you're compassionate, and you are um, just kind of, uh, well, you're friendly. <laughs> And you care, and you're you're generally um, well. Anyway, the opposite of agreeableness is being critical of other people, meaning you're you're kind of rejecting of others, and um, you're just not very open to other people's influence, that kind of thing. And so, um, the more agreeable you are, the more friendly and compassionate you are, the more likely you are to not procrastinate. Why would that be? Well, I don't really know exactly. <laughs> I mean, if I was to speculate, I would say that when you are friendly and compassionate, then you're just happier often and happier people tend to procrastinate less often because, you know, we're going to get into a lot of the factors that lead to procrastination, which have a lot to do with trauma and depression and anxiety and this kind of thing. So I think maybe that's what it has to do with. I'm not really quite sure. Uh uh, neuroticism is positively associated with neuroticism, meaning that the more so neuroticism refers to depression, anxiety, nervousness, uh, highly sensitive, a lot of uh, tendency towards negative emotions, less resilient, less confident. And so uh, those qualities tend to be associated with more uh, uh, procrastination, which makes a lot of sense when I get into late, you know, discussing later in terms of the other factors that research has found, and I anecdotally. So, by the way, the fact these factors are based on research and based on just my own clinical experience. But um, when you are sad, then you're more likely to have less motivation and thus more likely to put things off. When you are anxious, then you're more likely to worry about various things that will cause you to. Uh, become 
uh, you know, stuck in the mud and have inertia regarding getting things done. So the more neuroticism, the more likely you are to also procrastinate. Not associated with extroversion. We all know what extroversion is, which uh, I suppose makes sense. But I think if I was to just take a guess at it, if I didn't know the research, I would say that extroverts were more likely to procrastinate because they're spending more time with their friends and stuff and uh, not spending enough time just sitting there and thinking and planning. But apparently it's not associated. Extroverted people and introverted people are no more likely to procrastinate. And then openness is also not associated in general. And there's a lot of studies looking, finding very similar things, but the, the sort of general consensus is that openness is not associated with procrastination. So what is openness? Well, this is people who are curious and inventive and are not afraid to try new things. And they're, they like experiencing things. And um, that is not associated with uh, the procrastination either way. So I, I, you know, I think that's kind of interesting. All right, let's get into perfectionism. This is one of the biggest factors for common procrastination. Not always, obviously, but it, it is one of the first things that I will assess in people. So what's the definition of perfectionism? Well, this is the definition that I use, and I did a whole deep dive on perfectionism that you can listen to if you haven't already. It is an internal striving for high standards. So this is a drive that either that comes from within um, that is based on anxiety or just based on your own preference. And there's a lot of different sources of perfectionism. Some perfection, and you can listen to the whole deep dive, but... Some sources of perfectionism are just your preference, and I'm kind of a perfectionist, and I think that most of my perfectionism is based on just this desire to uh, do things well and uh, take pride in it, and also I have limited time on this planet, so I want to get things done, and so I'm, I'm highly driven because I've always been that way. I talk about that sometimes. When I was a teenager, I was very acutely aware and ever since have been of the finite nature of life. And so I don't want to waste my time and I want to get things done. I, I want to, uh, I don't know if achieve things is really the best word for it, but I, I get a lot of meaning from completing fun projects or or meaningful projects to me, you know, like renovating a room or something. It's like, you just feels good when you're done. And, and uh, I have a lot of perfectionism and drive along those lines. But a little bit of my perfectionism comes from another place, which is worry about not doing things right or anxiety about, um, what is the anxiety about? Failure, I guess. And so um, depending on where your perfectionism comes from and how much self-esteem you have, then it, it will, I think, determine how much procrastination will take hold in your life. So being a perfectionist doesn't, in my experience and research shows, so what does the research say? Okay, well, the research says is that if you have high self-esteem and you're a perfectionist, then you have actually lower rates of procrastination than other people do. And I think I would fall into that category. I, I have pretty high self-esteem. I was raised well enough so that I, f I don't have low self-worth. And for whatever reason, I'm a perfectionist. And so high, high self-esteem perfectionists, wake up in the morning, they want to do things, they want to get things done, and they don't get, uh, they don't run into barriers of low self-esteem because they have high self-esteem. Whereas if you have low self-esteem and you're a perfectionist, then you actually have higher than average rates of, of, of procrastination. You 
uh, you have you're highly driven. You want to get things done, but you believe that uh, you're a bad person, or you're going to screw things up, or no one's going to care, or something along those lines, and you get really bogged down. So perfectionism can 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 be extremely positive if it is matched with high self esteem, or just neutral at the very least. And perfectionism can be extremely debilitating when it is matched up with low self esteem. Uh, so the solution is either to lower your standards in the short term, uh, which is what I will work with people on, of just like, hey, uh, you got to work against your perfectionism because it's not helping. Long term, though, we want to raise people's self-esteem so that their perfectionism can run amok in their personality and behavior and not cause any problems. Um, you know, one could say that this entire podcast was created in part because of my high self-esteem perfectionism. Uh, in the very beginning of this podcast, I, and th- really throughout, we really, you know, over the 13 years of this podcast, I um, have always striven, strove, <laughs> I've always been driven to create a very, very good product, as good as I can make it anyway. And I'll, I'll listen to other podcasts, because I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I will hear things that I don't like that other podcasts are doing, and then I always try to not do that in my podcast. Like, just as an example, one of the things that really drives me nuts about a lot of podcasts, particularly podcasts that I'm not that into, but I still like, is when they have like five, ten minutes at the beginning of the episode where they're just kind of rambling about stuff. And, I, and I'm, I'm always thinking, get to the point, you know, get to the the real part of this episode. You know, I clicked on this episode. I don't want to hear about some random thing that you did over the weekend or some inside joke that you're talking about. Now, if you're really into a podcast, then you don't mind those kinds of things because it's just kind of an ongoing Conversation that you're paying attention to between people that you enjoy, but you know, there's a fair amount of podcasts I listen to that I don't like that, and and so I, for example, will do everything in my power to avoid doing that at the beginning of a of an episode. Um, You know, just along those lines. Another thing that bores me is when episodes have long intros with a lot of music, and I don't know if you've noticed, but. I don't do that. I, I, I've, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a songwriter. <laughs> I, I record, so is Birdo. There's a lot of incentive t- for me to insert some kind of uh, music at the beginning. And I don't do that because I get so bored uh, you know, with podcasts that do that in the beginning. Even if it's just like five seconds of music, I'm like, okay, get to the point. <laughs> Especially if it's a podcast that lives to all time. He's like, I've heard that song. And so, you know, I'm guessing some of y'all are like, well, you know, Kirk, you do that because there's this song that plays all the time. And, you know, uh, there's some music that has to be played just for ads and that kind of thing. But anyway, so um, so what's my point? My point is, is that, <laughs> you know, I, I hate to uh, maybe I should just stop talking about it myself because I'm, I'm guessing some of you are like procrastinators and you're thinking, OK, Kirk, we get it. You don't procrastinate big, you know, BFG or BFD, BF, not BFG, BFD, uh, uh, enough bragging about yourself. Um, yeah, I get that <laughs> as well. So I'll, I'll just stop talking about myself. But I think it is relevant on some level because uh, um, I think all of us are on the teeter-totter of procrastination versus getting things done. And I know what that feels like. You know, it's not like I'm 
it's not like I'm not a procrastinator. I think I could be, and I have been, and I am temporarily sometimes. And so I think I, I can definitely feel a gravitation of procrastination at times that I have to work against. So it's not like I, I don't um, struggle with it. It's just I have to very frequently push back on it, you know, because there's always an incentive to do something else that is easier, right? Anyway, so uh, for example, I was working with a client, and I, again, whenever I talk about clients, I always change things to protect their identity. But I was working with a client who was frequently worrying about his financial situation. He worried about his savings and about paying for his family and that sort of thing. And uh, we would talk about it, and he would make a decision He'd say, okay, you know what? I'm going to change jobs because my financial situation needs to change or I don't like this job and I'd I'd rather work at this other job. But he would procrastinate about it uh, in between sessions and he would never take an action and he would feel guilty about that. He'd be like, oh, you know, I know I keep talking about that I hate my job, but I just... I just, you know, he'd beat himself up. It's just like, I just keep procrastinating about it. It's like, as soon as the session over, I just stop thinking about it. And then I talk with you and I realize I need to do something. And I'm sure you're really tired of hearing me talk about this every time. So there's this aspect of procrastination of, of, you know, beating yourself up. And he was a bit of a perfectionist. And so he is, he's trying to dial in this like perfect job with like the perfect boss and the perfect amount of money and the perfect saving situation and the perfect lifestyle. And he also had low, low, low self-esteem from the way he was raised. And so he would look at his job and he'd go, oh, this job is terrible. What's wrong with my life? And I'm such a loser. I need to change. I need to change. I need to change. Okay. Uh, but then when he actually sat down to do anything to change, he would bump up against his low self-esteem and he'd be like, well, what's the point? I'm not going to get what I want anyway. So it was like this, you know, vicious cycle of perfectionism and procrastination. And through our various different explorations, we discovered that he was procrastinating because he was deeply worried about making the wrong decision. And he just could not accept anything other than a perfect result regarding his career, which he also kind of knew didn't really exist. Um, you know, like he was just uh, really focused on this fantasy of perfection with career that just doesn't exist. And so we worked on lowering his standards. We worked on raising his self-esteem. And eventually he changed jobs, even though he made less money and he felt a lot better. But it was, it, it took a lot of therapy and a lot of reworking of his uh, thinking process and a lot of the way he, uh, and reducing the amount of beating himself up and really reworking how he saw himself and life and the future and what is good in life and all this. It took a long time for him to be able to actually be in the flow of his own needs and his own wants and actually enact that without bumping into into barriers. Okay. So that's perfectionism. Now let's also talk about traumas regarding responsibility. I've seen this before. There are some people who have traumas about responsibility and getting things done. For example, a parent who is really strict. So let's say you have a parent that is uh, putting a lot of chores on you and just like, you got to get that done. You got to get that done. You did that wrong. You did that wrong. And whenever, as an, and then, you know, 20 years later, you're an adult, you're 35 years old. And whenever, whenever you think about doing a chore, 
that internalized voice from your parent is in your head, either perceptibly or not perceptibly, saying, you're going to screw it up, get it done, get it done. But then there's this other part of you that is saying, but I don't want to do it and you can't make me. There's a, so there's a lot of people like this. It's not all procrastinators, obviously, but I've treated a lot of people who have procrastination of this sort. Essentially what's happening is whenever – so let's say there's like two parts of the self. One part is the superego. One part is the ego, right? Or the, I guess you could say the id on some level. Um, so the superego is like you, you have to get these five errands done today in order for things to go well in your life. And, but then the id is saying, but I don't want to. I, I want to relax. You can't make me. And the superego says, well, you're a piece of crap if you don't get your stuff done and you need to do it now. And then the id is like, but I don't want to. I deserve to relax and I don't like the way you're talking to me right now. So I'm not going to do it. No, no, I don't want to. And so it's just a regression, right? And so inside the self are these warring internalized voices. One voice is their seven-year-old or 13-year-old self, and the other voice is their parent yelling at them. And what will happen is the ego will interpret all this and decide a course of action, which is, well, I'm just not going to do it because I don't feel like it. And what the, when you hear the person consciously talk, they'll just, they'll just say like, well, you know, the errands aren't that important. Or I'm just, not that, I'm just not the sort of person that gets things done. Or stop asking me to do, you know, because eventually other people will get harmed by this person. And they'll say, I thought you said you were going to do that thing for me. And the procrastinating individual will say, um, you know, I don't like all this pressure you're putting me under. I have a lot of things to do in my life and I deserve to relax. And, and the procrastinator will be stuck in this place of constant battle between responsibility and freedom. And uh, because of those early traumas, when it, because of a overbearing or some kind of situation when they're growing up. And so every time a responsibility pops into their head, it you know, goes through that process, and what comes out is a behavior of, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. Um, and the way to treat that, obviously, is to treat those traumas and to make them aware to the individual, which can be um, very liberating for people. Uh, not easily changed, by the way, but, um, but uh, uh, you know, something to work on. All right, depression. So obviously, if someone is suffering from depression, this is going to cause, quote unquote, procrastination because lack of motivation neurologically is a hallmark of depression. Also, when uh, people are depressed, they might feel like, well, what's the point? What's the point of doing anything? Because it just nothing matters. Another element of depression is that you don't enjoy things that you normally enjoy. And so when, you know, like for, for example, getting back to me, <laughs> when I'm recording this podcast, for example, like I could have procrastinated it, but I actually like to do it. If I was depressed, I wouldn't enjoy doing this right now and thus I, I would have even less motivation to get all my ducks in a row so that I could do it. Uh, anxiety is another. If you, so if you suffer from just generalized anxiety, this can also lead to procrastination and social anxiety because people will worry about making a mistake, disappointing others, humiliating themselves, being a failure, getting hurt by others, um, having to do something that's scary. And it, you know, people who suffer from ongoing anxiety learn it's better to avoid 
scary things because when they go into the unknown, then terrible things happen and that can lead to procrastination. And there's various when, and this is another common reason for procrastination that I've treated that for some people, they are aware of that. They're like, yeah, uh, you know, the reason why I'm not writing that book that I want to write is because I'm terrified that no one's going to like it or something. But then other people, they're not aware of their anxiety or how it affects their procrastination. And they, they just will have these cognitions and these narratives that say things like, well, you know, I'm not like one of those rat race people that are always constantly getting everything done. Or I'm not one of those people that, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to be, a, I'm a free spirit or something like that. And, and they're uh, in denial of how they procrastinate. And deep down, they really know they're procrastinating. Deep down, they know they're anxious. Deep down, they actually don't like the fact they're procrastinating, but they have an, a narrative about it that protects their ego from the uh, shame that they're feeling about procrastination. Uh, so the anxiety topic is really, and, and depression for that matter as well, is pretty complicated. Uh, um, uh, and for the sake of time, I don't have time to go into it that much. But just know that if someone suffers from ongoing generalized anxiety or social anxiety, uh, or even OCD, I suppose, it could be the one and only reason why people procrastinate. And so you have to assess that and treat that. Avoidant personality is another factor. You, you know, I did a whole deep dive on that. And these are based on schemas that are developed early in life that say, I am not effective, I won't succeed, um, there's something wrong with me. And so this obviously can get in the way of getting things done because you have this desire of just like, okay, you know what, I, I should get a job. And then the self says, but I will be found out about how stupid I am, or I'm going to make a fool out of myself. I'm just, or everyone's going to know that I'm just a complete awkward fool. And so it's just better to put it off, even though you can't pay your bills or, you know, you're getting pressured to get a job or something and you just procrastinate, procrastinate, procrastinate. Uh, dependent personality also is another factor for some people's uh, procrastination with s the schemas independent personality is I'm not good at things. I need help with things. Um, I won't do something unless someone approves of nearly every step along the way. I must please others instead of myself. These kinds of schemas obviously are going to get in the way of feeling confident and moving forward on your own to get things done. So uh, this is a huge area as well and a factor that needs to be assessed and treated. Another is being state-oriented, as as they call it in psychology. So this is being preoccupied with your emotional state instead of thinking about the big picture. So, for example, um, for me, I have a procrastination around skiing, um, snow skiing. I uh, And I've noticed this over the years that Whenever I think about going and going up to the mountains and going skiing, I I think about the the cold. I think about the traffic. I think about walking in my ski boots, which I hate. I just hate. I, I wish I was a snowboarder for this reason because they snowboarders just wear regular fun boots, but but uh, ski boots are just the most uncomfortable things to wear when you're walking. And uh, I think about. Um, just how much time it takes and all that kind of stuff. And I never want to go skiing. But then occasionally I actually get up on the mountain because people force me or some event happens. And every time I'm on the mountain, I'm like, 
ah, oh, this is so great. I should do this more often. How come I am, whenever I'm thinking about going skiing, when I'm, you know, in Seattle, I'm always thinking about the bad side, but I'm never, I never think about the good side of skiing. So this is an example of being state oriented in that I'm being really preoccupied with the, the negative aspects of the skiing process instead of thinking about the big picture, which includes the fun and the, you know, being with other people and being in nature and if it's a sunny day and, you know, there's just the exercise, I suppose. So um, there's other examples like um, for some people, uh, well, so for you, for y'all out there listening, if you're a procrastinator, think about if, do you focus too much or are you really preoccupied with the negative feelings that you might have if you actually begin that process to achieve that task? Are you thinking about, oh, I'm going to get sweaty or, oh, that's going to be scary or, oh, that's going to you know, potentially be annoying to me? For some procrastinators, they're really focused on those bad feelings because, I don't know, maybe they just don't know how to soothe themselves or uh, there seems to be some people that are just really focused on those kind of predictive future feelings. and Or they are really focused on their feelings in the present and in the past, by the way. So being state-oriented, you are more likely in the moment, you know, say, so, so with skiing, just going back to that. If I was very state-oriented, I would be on the mountain and I would be really focused on how I'm cold and how my legs hurt because I'm out of shape or something instead of thinking about the bigger picture, which is, you know, this is really enjoyable. Um, And this, you know, there's a hard, there's a fine line between being irrationally preoccupied with your emotional state and being rationally (laughs) uh, noticing of your emotional state. So uh, it kind of depends, but, um, if I really focused on the negative aspects while I was skiing, if I really focused on the negative aspects of skiing in the past, then that would, uh, you know, change my evaluation of going skiing in the future. So that's another possible reason for procrastination. This one's harder to kind of detect because if you are procrastinating because you're worried about a feeling in the future, are you are you irrationally focusing on it or are you rationally focusing on it because you should be focusing on the consequences of taking actions in the future? This, this one's kind of a harder one. But the thing to think about is when you think about doing something, what kinds of uh, barriers emerge in your mind? Is it often like, well, I'm going to have a bad feeling when that happens and I don't want to do it. You might want to think about changing that preoccupation because that might help. And then, you know, like say you're, you, you, I don't know what would be something It's like, okay, I really want to do some landscaping. And then you think, oh, but it's, you know, I'm going to get sweaty. I'm going to get dirty. It's going to take time. Uh, I'm going to have to go to the store and interact with people at the plant store. I don't want to do that. I'm going to have to go to the place to get tools and I'm going to have to rake and I don't like to rake things and there's going to be weeds and that doesn't feel good. And so you're thinking about that and and then you think, uh, 
what if I was not to focus on all the negative aspects and I was to focus on the positive things like, well, it'll be actually kind of nice to get outside and get into the dirt and it'll be, it'll be really great when it's done and it'll feel good when I weed all that stuff. And there's a lot of enjoyment about nature and, and plants for, for me. And so then you do it. And then afterwards reflect back and think what were the negative aspects of that overwhelming or were they were I was I blowing them out of proportion prior to doing that action if the answer is yes then you as a treatment as a way of trying to change your procrastination you would want to really watch how you predict things in the future this is a, a pretty big reason as to why people procrastinate is they predict bad things are going to happen when they're not likely to happen in the future okay Another factor is a lack of connection with the self. If you don't know what you want, then it's hard to get things done. Because, you know, you say you have, if you lack a connection with the self because you weren't allowed one growing up, and by the way, you can gain a connection with the self, meaning that you gain a connection with who you are and what you want and how you feel. But if you don't have a very good connection with that, then you have this to-do list, these 10 things to do, but none of them you know, to, to get things done, particularly if they're annoying, like, uh, or there's barriers, then they have to come from within. We have to, like, for example, with this podcast for me, recording this today, you know, I don't know how to explain it exactly, but I really wanted to record this episode. I really wanted to talk about this. I really wanted to kind of think out loud. I really wanted to get this out for y'all. I really wanted to have it done because it's been on my to-do list for a long time. And so it feels, it, I know it because I was raised well enough that I have a connection with myself that when I, in the, you know, this morning when I was thinking about doing this, I knew on, based on the emotions and the urges that I had that this was coming from me and I wanted it. If you lack a connection with the self and as you look at your to-do list and you and you don't have a connection with the aspects of yourself that motivate you to do something, it's much harder to, to get motivated to do something. Um, also, it's harder as you're doing something to gauge whether or not you're doing something you want to do. It's also harder to gauge how you will feel upon a task being completed because you're not in connection with your needs, you're not in connection with your emotions. And so when you do complete a task, you don't know, is this a task that I, you know, like just to get concrete with this, episode, when I finish it, I'm going to, like on a scale from one to 10, I'm going to feel like, like a six. Um, I wouldn't say it's like an amazing accomplishment for me to complete this episode, but, but I'll feel pretty good. Maybe even a seven or eight, actually, you know, when I'm done with this episode, cause I've been wanting to do this for such a long time. And I, I kind of like how the episode's going by the way, <laughs> that I'm going to feel like an eight. Well, how do I know I'm going to feel that way? How can I predict that? Well, that's because I'm in connection with my emotions and my needs and I can kind of feel it emerging right now. And I just know from past experience because I've had experiences like this in the past and I, and I noticed how I felt. I didn't consciously kind of ask myself on a scale from one to 10. But if you ask me right now, as I'm asking myself, how do I know that? Well, I'm in connection with myself. If I'm not in connection with myself, then I don't know how good it's going to feel when I'm done with it. And thus, I don't know if I should do it or not, right? So having a connection with the self is extremely important for a lot of reasons, including reducing procrastination. Another 
trauma is attachment trauma that can also affect uh, procrastination. People with insecure attachment are uh, much uh, you know, they're, they're not as able to regulate their emotions and regulate their behavior in general very well. They have more stress and thus more, um, you know, when we're under stress, we're much more likely to procrastinate because we're just trying to survive, right? We are, if we have attachment trauma, we're, we're spending a lot of time trying to avoid attachment trauma triggers instead of doing things we want to do. Uh, you're much more likely to develop some sort of disorder that's involved in procrastination, like depression or avoidant personality disorder. So there's a lot to say in this category, but um, I think I've already kind of covered a lot of it. Um, other emotional trauma reasons. This is a category. I'm just sort of a catch-all. So there, are, when I've treated people with procrastination, you know, I'll look at perfectionism. I'll look at traumas regarding responsibility. I look at depression, anxiety, avoidant personality, dependent, state orientation, connection with self, attachment traumas. But there are other emotional and personality factors and trauma factors that can result in procrastination. Um, I won't go into all of them, but you know, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of ro roads. There's also other personality traits like lack of self-control, inability to postpone gratification, and having a lot of negative affect, negative feelings, just a general proneness to negative feelings. So these are also things that you can work on. It's not common that I'll treat someone for procrastination, and the only reason why they're procrastinating is because they just simply lack self-control. But it, it can be a part of the procrastination um, reasons. All right, so the, all the factors I just mentioned are all what I'm categorizing as personality factors. Now let's go into cognitive and skill factors. So this fact, the first factor I want to talk about are irrational beliefs. So these are, this is a cognitive factor. So the, for example, some irrational beliefs that can lead to procrastination are today isn't a good day. You know, another time will feel more right. This is a really common irrational belief that I've seen in procrastinators. They will be in this constant state of, well, okay, right now it's, you know, t today's not perfect you know, because they're, the weather isn't right, or I have to do these other things, or I don't have 100% energy, or, you know, my desk isn't clean, or, you know, you can always come up with a million excuses, right? But th there's also an irrationality to this belief that in order to get things done, everything in your life has to be perfect. And that's simply not true. Like for me today, doing this episode, there's a lot of things that are not perfect about my life right now. <laughs> I won't go into detail, but, um, you know, work-wise, organization-wise, house-wise. And uh, so, but I understand that I, if I wait for things to be perfect in order to get things done, I'll never get things done. Okay. Another irrational belief is I will fail. If I, if I try this, I will fail. Or another irrational belief is it's only worth doing if I don't fail. Um, another rational be belief is it takes too much out of me, or I don't have what it takes, or something bad will happen, or people will laugh at me. Uh, now, sometimes these are not irrational beliefs, but often they are when they are related to procrastination. And for some people, this might be the only factor that really results in the procrastination. It's just this, this negative prediction or negative thinking pattern that the person is very sure of. And I've worked with people like this. It's, 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 you know, like the, 
the first one I mentioned, today isn't a good day, another time will feel more right in order for me to work on this task. It would seem that when you call that out as a therapist, you'd be like, okay, well, that thought doesn't make any sense for the following reason. You talk about it for 10, 15 minutes. You think that would just dispel that irrational belief? No, uh, it's not that easy. For some people, um, that irrational belief is is very, very ingrained, and it's really hard for them to get um, out of that. Now, often that irrational belief is uh, emerges from one of the other things we talked about before or one of the things I talk about later, but anyway. Another uh, cognitive and skill factor is poor time management. This is a big one. And this is often brought up in the literature as as a factor as to why people procrastinate. Uh, I don't think it's the main one, though, because it, it almost seems like shaming people. In the in the literature, you know, online, when not in literature, but online when they talk about procrastination, a lot of it is like, you know, you need willpower and you just do it, just get it done, or you need better time management. And it feels like shaming the victim to some extent. And so I don't want to overemphasize poor time management, but it is something to think about. Like, for example, um, things that I do to avoid procrastination, things that I do to uh, manage my time better is when I have a task, I will try like a big task or even a small task (laughs) for that matter, I'll try to do it in all one action rather than doing it in piecemeal. Uh, I always give this example because I think years and years ago, um, I just, someone told me to do this and I was like, oh, that's such a great idea. I, when, um, so me in my 20s, I would go to the mailbox, I would get the mail, I'd bring it in the house and I'd put it in a little holder for my mail. And then, uh, I, you know, the next day I might go to the mail and I'd open up the mail and I'd find a couple bills and I would put the bills in another little slot. And then a couple days later, I would go to the bills and I'd pull it out and I'd pay it and I'd get all the envelopes ready to go and I put it in another slot. And then another day later, I would pick up the mail and I'd take it out to the mailbox. Well, now, uh, or at some point, I don't know, around the age of 30, 35, I just decided, no, I'm not going to do it that way anymore. I think I'm wasting my time. So ever since then, I go to the mailbox, I get the mail, I immediately open all of it and recycle. It's mostly recycling because it's just a bunch of junk mail and envelopes and stuff. And if there are any bills or really anything to take care of, I take care of it right then. And then I go, I walk right back out to the mailbox and I put the, the bills in the mailbox. Now, some of you are thinking, why don't you pay online? I don't know. I'm old school. So I I think that that saves me time because I get it all done in one action rather than having to do one task spread out over five different steps. And each time that I initiate part of that action, it takes me a little bit to get into it, right? Now, some, some tasks you might want to piecemeal out because you will actually save time almost like an assembly line thing. So other tips along these lines that I have learned are I will avoid going to meaningless meetings, for example. So for me, if I don't go to meetings that are meaningless, I'll have more time and energy to do the things that I want to do. 
And I think this is another pretty big factor for people that procrastinate. Not everyone does this, obviously, but I've seen it where people will, won't say no to things. And they will do things because they're being asked to do things or they're, someone's requesting something from them. And they will uh, do those things for other people. And by the end of the day, they have no, ti- no time for themselves. Or maybe they have a little time for themselves, but not enough time to uh, relax and get all the things that they need to get done. Um, another thing that I do is I write things down in a to-do list instead of having it plague me over time. Um, a very, very important time management skill that I learned, I think like 15 years ago, was to, was to have a very elaborate to-do list. So my to-do list is broken up into various different categories. It's There's a podcast to-do list. There's a to-do list of things I need to do today. There's a to-do list of things that I want to do this week. There's a to-do list for things to do in the house. There's a a to-do list of things that I want to do eventually in my life. (laughs) There's a to-do list of, you know, different kinds of errand chore stuff like utility things and that kind of stuff. And this to-do list is extremely important to my time management because when I'm done with a task or even just done eating dinner with my wife or something, I'll look at my to-do list and it, I'll say, okay, there's three things that I wanted to get done today. I think I'm only going to get one of them. Which one should I do? And having it written down like that, and it's all on a computer screen, right, that I was talking about earlier. And it really helps me to manage my time. If I didn't have the to-do list, whenever I had uh, you know, a, f- a free couple hours, I would say, do I have something to do? And then I would probably just watch Netflix or something, <laughs> which isn't terrible, but I probably wouldn't get a lot of things done. And having something written down on a to-do list, there's something about it for me that I feel highly compelled to cross it off. There's something very satisfying about crossing something off on my to-do list. Anyway, Another thing that I do to avoid procrastination and to have better time management is to avoid too many cooks in the kitchen. For example, when I was in charge of writing the student handbook at my university, I, uh, when I was program director, I found that I would procrastinate it and I would say to myself, why am I procrastinating it? And this is actually a big pet peeve of mine. The, the student handbook, it, well, I won't go into the details, but... Um, well, I'll go into a little bit of detail. The student handbook is a very important document that basically delineates every single rule that is imposed on the students. And the students need to have that in their hands so that they know the rules, right, of the program and, 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 and all the guides that are in there. And so it, I always was annoyed when uh, the student handbook would often be published months and months after it was supposed to be given to the students. And why would that happen? Uh, I, you know, I didn't really know back in the day because I wasn't in charge of it. But I would just, I was like, this is six months late. The students needed this six months ago. How come y'all waited so long? Um, you know, like I was saying about taxes, the, the, the handbook is published the same time every single year. How come y'all who have been working here for decades can't uh, plan ahead <laughs> to have this thing done? And so when I became in charge of it, I, did, I was... I vowed that I was going to have that student handbook done when it was supposed to be in the student hands because we owe it to the students so that they know what the rules are. And by the way, the the teachers need to know the rules as well. Um, 
So I started to do it, but I found myself procrastinating on it. And I, I was like, why am I procrastinating? And the reason why I was procrastinating is because there were too many cooks in the kitchen. I wasn't, you know, I was writing my portion of the handbook, but there was all these other people that I needed to depend on to write their parts of the same handbook. And they were sort of lateral to me and I wasn't in charge of them. You know, they were other program directors. And I found that that process was extremely time consuming because I would have to, I would write something and then I would have to give it to them and I'd have to wait for them to revise and write things and then they'd have to give it to someone else. And some people used, you know, Google Docs, some people used MS Word, some people just used their pencil and it would drive me crazy. And so I figured out a way so that I could write the whole thing by myself. And so you would think if everyone writes it collaboratively, then it'll take a lot less time because if you have six people on a task, it should take less time. No, <laughs> this task was, it took six times as long because there were six more people involved. And so if I did it on my, by myself, I could get it done in uh, you know very, very quick time and have it released in time for publication for the students. And so it's another time management thing. It's kind of, you know, this is why time management and anti-procrastination measures are very specific, and you have to spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, how can I improve on this process so that I can get this done not only quicker, but I'll feel more motivated to do it, and it'll be a better product. And that was one of the things that it – and it wasn't easy. I had to push against a lot of traditions in my university so that I could write this um, document by myself. It wasn't easy. I had to, there were people that n no one wanted to, to do it this way, you know, but I had to very, I don't know, I don't know how to say this, but I had to s massage everyone, their egos, their worries, so that I could write the the handbook by myself. But all that time I put into it, I knew was going to save me so much more time because every time I wrote, as long as, as as soon as I got the system in place, then every time I wrote the handbook, I knew I would be saving time. So I invested that time to change the process, which was hard, kind of emotionally, and and that sort of thing. Anyway, um, so yeah, there's a lot of things we could talk about time management, but let's move forward. The other is organization ability, organizational ability. Um, this is pretty obvious. I won't go into detail here. It's you know a really quite particular case by case basis, and it's a matter of creating habits of organization, not of what what, what you want to do with time management and organization skills is you don't want to have to be strong arming it or white knuckling it. You want these things to be habitual. Like with me, my to do list, it's extremely habitual for me, um, and I even have my to do list on my phone. It's like a I don't know what you call it, but it's like a, a web based to do list and. When I'm out and about and I like, oh, I, I remember I had to do this thing or I'm in bed, I'm about to fall asleep and I'm like, oh, I have to do that thing. I just pick up my phone and I add a to-do list item to my to-do list and then I put it aside and I, I move on with my life and, I, and I, can, I feel rest assured that it's on that list, you know. Anyway, so that's a habit that I'm in. I'm extremely habitual about my to-do list. And so um, having a, uh, a habitual organization System is important anyway, but and there's a lot of different things we can go into there, but let's move on. Another is having unclear deadlines. This is actually a, a pretty common one, is that people will not have a clear deadline as to when they want to get some, something done. So, or have unrealistic 
deadlines, uh, these kinds of things. They, they will either say, I need to get this done by tomorrow. And even though they don't really have to get it done by tomorrow, and then it's too much pressure, they don't get it done by tomorrow, they feel bad about themselves, and then they will beat themselves up and they're more likely to procrastinate. So it's important to have a deadline that is realistic, that it shouldn't be too soon and it shouldn't be too late. Because if you have a deadline that's like, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it sometime in the future. Well, if that's your deadline, then for a lot of people, that just means, well, you know, I'll, I'll do it someday, you know, because someday is the deadline. Or, you know, my deadline is 10 years from now. And um, uh, so, you know, it's just another little tip. Another is not knowing how to get into the flow. And we've talked about this before, but getting into the flow, I'll talk about this later, um, but let's move on. Another big uh, thing that I find with procrastination is not having a proper work environment or the right tools. So, for example, for me, it's – I'm sure not everyone is like this. In fact, I know not everyone is like this. I'm sure I'm in the minority. But for me, in order to get things done, a lot of the things that I do are done on my computer, obviously with the podcast and all those kinds of things. And so when I sit down at my computer, I need things to be the way that I need them to be. <laughs> which is that requires a desktop computer. I know most people don't have desktop computers anymore, but I need a desktop computer because I need it to be fast. And, and you know, if you have a really fast desktop, it's a lot faster than any kind of laptop you're going to get. I also need, ext I need very big screens. I need a mouse because I don't like touchpads. Uh, when I use my mouse, I'm much quicker. And I need a big keyboard. So when I'm getting my stuff done and I'm, you know, getting my work done, I need my desktop. I also need a large desk. Right now I'm touching my very large desk, and I need to be clean. <laughs> so I need a large desk, my big desktop computer, my three screens, my big old-style keyboard, and my mouse, and then I can get things done. If I had, if I had to do all this stuff on a little laptop... I would probably procrastinate because I, when I would sit down to work, and if I had a real jumbled desk or not, you know, I didn't have a comfortable chair, then it just isn't an inviting place to get my stuff done. So uh, that's this is very important about having a proper work environment, and I find that for some people, they don't organize their desk well enough to make it a uh, an enjoyable place to work. Or they don't organize their computer well enough to make it an, enjoy an enjoyable place to work, and thus they will they'll they won't look forward to getting tasks done. Uh, another situation would be if you are um, if you procrastinate on cleaning the house, but your house is set up that so that it's really hard to clean. And maybe if you spent a couple of days, you could actually organize your house or change the furniture or some reorganize something. So that it's much easier to clean. You know, that's another example of making sure that you're thoughtful about your work environment so that it's inviting and is as pleasurable as possible. And you have the right tools available to get the, get the job done. And there's a lot of variability, a lot of specifics case by case in this as well. Another is taking on a lot of tasks. And I've talked about this before, but it's worth sort of having its own bullet point here, which is that... When you take on a lot of, and I see, I've seen, I know people that are like this who 
will say yes to things because they don't know how to say no, or they just really want to please, or they, or they just have this idea that they can get a lot of things done. They bite off more than they can chew, and they are frequently disappointing people, and they're frequently procrastinating on things because they do not know how to say no. They do not know how to say, nope, sorry, I can't do that. Someone will ask them to do something, and they're like, oh, I don't know if I can get that done, but they'll say yes. And then in their head, they're like, okay, I'm going to do that thing. But they've, they've agreed to do 10 things in they, – they've agreed to do a week's worth of things in one day. So six of the things are not going to get done. And they will beat themselves up, and a lot of people would be disappointed in them. And so this is often due to traumas when you're growing up and being forced to say yes to things that you want to say no to. And so it's extremely important, people, if you are one of these procrastinators, because I have people in my life that are like this, and it is very disappointing to, you know, try to depend on them. It's extremely, it's better to say no to someone than to say yes and then procrastinate and disappoint them. Okay. Um, And you'll feel better about yourself. Another factor cognitively is time perspective differences. There, you know, different cultures, different families, different people's biologies will result in people perceiving time differently than others. So again, whether it's culture, whether it's a family thing or a biological thing, some people perceive time in a much more fluid way, much less mathematical or much less by by the minute or you know much less concrete or in a grid, if you will. And it's it's very amorphous time. And so it's harder for them, even if they say, I'm going to get this done by five o'clock, they don't have an internal sense of what five o'clock means to them and how much time they have between now, now and five o'clock. So that's another factor. Now, we wouldn't want to fault someone for having a family or a culture that was like this or a biology that was like this. But it can be one of the factors that can lead to procrastination. All right, so those are the cognitive factors. Now let's just go on to other factors. This is another sort of final category of factors that lead to procrastination. And uh, the first factor I want to talk about is that you didn't really want to do it or it's not very meaningful to you. This is a huge, huge factor of procrastination. (laughs) Whenever I have talked with clients I would say half of the time, maybe not that, maybe a third of the time, this is the main factor. So someone's coming to me. uh, Let me give you an example. I had a client who uh, was in high school, and he said he procrastinated on his schoolwork, and he was getting bad grades. And I I asked him, so uh, how do you feel about school? And he's like, well, you know, I I, I really want to succeed in school. I really like, you know, I really want to get good grades. I really want to get good grades. And I don't understand what I'm doing. And it's like, oh, okay, so we... So he's telling me he wants to get A's and B's, but he's getting C's and D's. And so, because a lot of the kids I would talk to, they don't, they didn't really care about school, but he really wanted to do well. And so I would talk with him a lot about skills on how to improve his workflow or how to get motivated, this kind of, this sort of thing, but nothing worked. It, and we worked on it for months. And eventually I just thought, I wonder if he if he truly wants to do well, because what would happen was he would get his, he'd get his homework, he'd go home and he just wouldn't do it. And then he'd come into session with me and he's like, yeah, I, I just didn't do the homework. I don't understand what's wrong with me. And we'd come at it from all these different angles. And then finally, after months and months of this, I just said, 
let me ask you a question. How do you know that you want to get A's in school? How do you know that? And he's like, well, I, I, that's just what you're supposed to do, right? And so we explored this for a long time. And eventually, uh, and it took a lot, a while. Eventually, I, I hypothesized that he actually didn't want to do well in school, that deep down, but he had convinced himself that he wanted to do well in school because of prestige or he wanted to impress his family or he was he was used to putting himself in the back burner. There are a lot of different reasons as to why he was doing this. And uh, his body was enacting what he really wanted to do, which is to get C's and D's. But his mind was saying, I want to get A's. But his you know his true self was not into it. So he was bifurcated in his personality, and most of him did not want to do well, and or you know most of him wanted to graduate but not do amazingly well, but a very small part of him wanted to get A's, and so and that and the very small part of him was the part he was identifying with and the part he was talking with me about, and so it took a while to allow for this other part of himself to emerge. So sometimes when we are procrastinating, it is not because. There's something wrong with us or we need to, you know, improve our skills. It could literally just be because we don't actually want to do it. And again, if you don't lack a, if you lack a connection with the self, it's going to be harder to even evaluate that. But uh, it's very important that whenever you're procrastinating about something, this is this should be the first question that you should evaluate. Is this actually important to me? Do I actually want to do this? Is this something that is meaningful to me? Is there a reason why I'm doing this? Now, uh, not every action that you do in your life has to have some supreme meaning. Like if if I have to go to Home Depot or Lowe's or some hardware store and, and buy a new thing, um, it's not like it enacts the meaning of my life. But it is connected. You know, recently I had to, I had to buy a new ratchet set and uh, it was a chore. I was like, okay, got to go to the store. I got to look, got to find one, got to buy. And um, as I was thinking about doing it, there was an, a, a, a very uh, small sense of the meaningfulness of getting this ratchet set. One is it's good to have the right tools. It's good to have tools that work. There are times when I want to get, I'm, I'm, I'm mounting, I'm, I bought this new mount for a TV that's like, I, I've never had one of these mounts that like screws into the wall, you know, those kinds of mounts for a TV. I've never had that before. And, and I, uh, got one and installed it. And, um, my old ratchet set wasn't very good to, cause there's just one bolt that's like, it's real tough. And I, I was like, oh, I need a good ratchet set for that. So anyway, as I'm going, to, but you know, by the time it's on my to-do list, it's just like get ratchet set. And so I'm going to, the, I'm thinking about going to the store, and I have this slight sense of if I get the ratchets, you know, I, I, I won't be able to do something fun because I have to go get this ratchet set. Well, why am I doing this? And again, it's this background feeling that I have of, well, I'm going to get it. It's going to feel good. I'm going to be able to work on that mount. Once I get the mount all set up, I'm going to have a TV in the right place that I want it to be, and everything's going to be awesome, and my life is going to be really great. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just, uh, it's an exaggeration. But so as I am thinking about doing, you know, doing the chore of the errand of going to get the ratchet set instead of doing something fun, there is a, a general sense of this fits into the purpose of my life, even though it's a very small part of it. 
but it is in line with what I want. Now, let's say that I'm a different person and I don't really care about a TV mount, but someone told me that I should have a TV mount and I'm not really into the TV mount or I don't really am connected with my feelings of my future predicted feelings of feeling satisfied with the fact that the TV mount is working right. Well, then as I had this to do this, well, I got to get a new ratchet set because the old one isn't working on this TV mount. I'm going to have a harder time motivating myself to get this thing done of getting the ratchet set because I don't want why I, you know, doing this isn't in line with the purpose of my life. And again, I'm using purpose of my life in sort of a broad sense, right? Having a good TV mount is not the purpose of my life, but enjoying my life is, and having a well-oiled life is, having a, you know, an efficient life with, and I, and I kind of, at least I feel like having a good TV mount is in line with that because it's cleaner and it, um, it's more stronger. Like right now, my TV is on this table and it's glass, and I'm always worried that this TV is just going to like slide off because there's nothing locking the TV down. And TVs, you know, now are big and expensive. And so um, I do feel like this TV mount thing is actually a, a small, very, very small part of like the enjoyment of the rest of my life. You know, this might be the last TV mount thing I ever install. When you get old, you think things like that, like is this the last TV I ever buy? And because, you know, will I die before the next TV that I want to buy? Anyway, so uh, I'm not consciously thinking, when I'm getting the ratchet set, I'm not consciously thinking of that, but it, it, it's it's in the background. So for y'all out there, if you're, if you're procrastinating on something, you know, think about what you're procrastinating on and think, do I really want to do this? And if, don't take your first answer, particularly if you're procrastinating on it, because I've worked on this with clients a lot. Um, I, you know, I've worked on this with other clients as well, where they'll be procrastinating on something and I will say, okay, do you really want to do this? Most people, even though they don't really want to do it at first will say, yeah, absolutely. I want to do it. But with traumas or with schemas or with lack of connection with the self, their first reaction is the answer they feel that feels right to them, but it's not actually right. And, And when we investigate it more, eventually clients will say to me, actually, you know what? I don't want to do this thing or I don't want to do it in that way or I don't want to do it in, on this timeline or I don't want to do it in this order or I don't want to do it um, along those lines. I, I want to do it this other way. And when we can get in contact with that, then they no longer procrastinate. At the very least, they can just say, I don't want to do that thing anymore. I'm going to scratch that thing off my list because I don't really want to do it. So with the kid in high school, we were, a, you know, he, he was coming in for procrastination. That was his primary reason why he's coming to therapy is because he was procrastinating about his schoolwork. What we discovered after probably, I don't know, 15 months of therapy, it took a long time, that he actually did not want to do it in the first place. That's why he was, quote, unquote, procrastinating. Very, very important. Very important to evaluate for procrastinators. And can be hard for some people because the, – so the thing about this kid was that once we got to the place where he was like, you know what? I actually don't want to get good grades, I guess. It was a grieving process for him because he saw himself as someone who got A's and B's. He saw himself as a studious nerd who got good grades in school. And when he discovered deep down that although he would like to be a nerd and he would like – or you know he'd like to be a book nerd, he would like to – 
get A's and B's, you know. But deep down, it isn't actually the majority of his self that wants that. And that was a loss to him. He had to lose an identity of himself. Another common example of this that I run into a lot is people will learn that I play music, you know, guitar, drums, piano, that kind of thing. And they'll say, oh, I always wanted to learn how to play the piano. I always wanted to, you know, I've, I've, and, I'll, and I'll say, well, why didn't you? And they're like, well, I just never had the time. And that never made any sense to me because I, it's not like I've had all this free time to to learn how to play the guitar or learn how to play the drums or learn how to play piano. I'm not good at any of those instruments, by the way, I'm, but I'm good enough to, you know, have fun with it. And uh, I, I always thought, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that you don't have time. Now, maybe some people it's like particularly they don't have time. But for me and just guitar, I'll just talk about guitar. I I cannot not play the guitar. <laughs> I, I need to play my guitar all the time. Whenever, you know, there's just times where I'm just like, okay, I have five minutes. You know, there's a joke that my wife, Stacy, uh, the two of us will make is that um, – the two of us would be like, okay, let's, you know, it's, we're leaving the house to go somewhere on an errand or, you know, on a date or something. And, uh, you know, quintessential or stereotypical to gender, I, I can get ready in, you know, 30 seconds. And I pretty much just throw on my shoes and I'm, I'm at the door. And she takes longer. And so sometimes I'm standing at the front door just dilly-dallying. And what do I do with that extra time? I pick up my guitar, I start playing. <laughs> and so Stacy will come around the corner and she's ready to go. And she'll see me standing in the hallway playing the guitar. She's like, oh, there you are playing the guitar, you know, just getting a little bit of guitar playing in. So to me, I, when I hear people, they're saying, oh, I never had the time. Or I always procrastinated. I I think, are you sure you really wanted to play guitar? Because if you really wanted to play guitar and really wanted to... So I, I sort of break people up into three categories regarding musical instruments. There are people that don't want to play and they know it. There are people that do want to play and make it happen. That's people like me and Umberto. And then there are people in the middle who want to... Um, they intellectually want to play an instrument and want to get good at it. But they actually don't really want to do it because if they really wanted to do it, they would just do it. You know, like for me, I never took a lesson and no one ever forced me to play any of these instruments. I just played them because I, I couldn't help myself. So there's a group of people in the middle with musical instruments where they might feel like they're procrastinating. But what I would say is there's a pretty good chance that they don't actually want to play the instrument they want to be good at the instrument. They want to be able to play the instrument, but they don't actually want to play it because if you actually wanted to play it, you would just play it is, is my thing. Uh, because I, I learned how to play guitar and piano and drums, and I was terrible at it for months, if not years, before I got good at it. Being bad at playing those instruments or having even terrible versions of those instruments did not stop me from playing them because I wanted to play them. So... I'm not saying this to shame those of y'all who like are in that category. What I'm saying is like you have to really evaluate, do I really want to do this thing or do I just want the idea of doing this thing? And I think that my teen client had that thing. He wanted the idea of getting A's, but he didn't actually want to get A's. He didn't want to do the work to get the A's, which is, you know, what getting A's is.
All right. Another uh, factor in procrastination is the absence of appropriate positive reinforcers. This makes a lot of sense, right? That, and there's a lot of examples that we can get into, but for some people, they are chronically procrastinating or procrastinating about particular tasks because there's nothing good that will come from them achieving that task, <laughs> you know? Like uh, an example that often happens is people will procrastinate at work because the boss doesn't give them any accolades or, um, you know, in some places, there is an incentive to not get your work done because if you get it done quickly, then you're expected to do it faster. So some work environments actually actively have systems in place that you are rewarded for procrastinating. Um, another is for children who are doing schoolwork or teenagers, and there's, again, no um, accolades. Uh, and this is something that a lot of parents that I would work with in family therapy would complain about. Their kid wouldn't be doing their homework, and I would evaluate the whole system, and I would you know, f- try to figure out all the different reasons why the kid wasn't doing the homework. And sometimes the reason why is because there was, there was literally nothing good that came from them doing their homework to, to the kid. Now, to an adult, something good that happens is, well, it's one iterative step to getting your degree. But uh, some kids, for various different reasons, don't care about getting their degree, whether that's pathological or or just their personality. They just don't care. And so getting, you know, doing their schoolwork means nothing to them. And doing schoolwork is very annoying. And this creates this vicious cycle where, you know, say you have a 13-year-old who doesn't really feel the incentive of getting their high school diploma or doing well in school and they stop doing their schoolwork because there's just no positive incentive to do so, they fall behind. They now, when they're given an assignment, they're even less likely to do the schoolwork because it it will take so much more work to get up to speed in order to get enough credits in, in that class t- to get credit for the class, you know. So it can, I would work with a lot of kids who would fall into that hole. And so it's important for parents in this situation to – uh, find out immediately if a kid is starting to lose motivation to do school that you figure out a way to incentivize it. Sometimes all it takes is really drilling into the kid that doing schoolwork is very important, that it is an iterative step to you having happiness. That's always the thing that I always try to get families to attach it to is you doing your homework now is annoying and is reducing your happiness in life. But it's an investment into the future on having a lot of happiness in the future. Now, some teenagers lack the uh, brain power to and the brain connections to actually be able to um, uh, feel that future and to be motivated to build for that future. But anyway, so that's a you know so it, there's a workplace's lack of incentives. There's school work that's lack of incentives. But sometimes it's just you that that. You are um, trying to achieve something and uh, you're procrastinating about it and you don't perceive anything positive actually happening from achieving that task. All right. Another thing to think about is phones and computers and other distractions. It's very important that with – and this is an obvious one. And I find that this one isn't very common. You know, I find that 
computers and phones and Twitter and Reddit and YouTube as distractions are usually the symptom of the problem, not the problem when it comes to uh, procrastination. But it is something to think about, obviously. And one of the things that I did a while back is I found myself procrastinating a lot by going to Reddit and YouTube. And I actually deleted the um, the the bookmarks from my browser so that I wouldn't click. I would it just just that extra step of having to type in the URL into my you know browser uh, prevented me from going there as often, and I got more stuff done. Uh, I don't have to do that anymore, but I did. Uh, I don't know, it was maybe five years ago. So addressing that is very important. Um, if you have an addiction to your phone, which can happen, or, a com- or at least a slight compulsion to checking your phone. You know, that's another thing that I, that I do is I have my phone on silent a lot. In fact, my phone is almost always on silent because I just I don't want – I do a lot of things where I don't want to be interrupted. The, the other thing is I turn off all of the notifications that I don't want to see, you know, because it, it, by default, uh, especially if you have a number of apps on your phone, they're – you're going to get uh, notifications constantly. And that little blinking light or the little notification sound or the buzzing, you know, the vibration, that will distract you. And, for example, right now, I'm in the flow. I'm recording this episode. I'm in the flow. I feel I feel good. My words are coming out right. I, you know, I'm looking at my notes. Everything's, you know, working well for me. If my phone was constantly lighting up with little notifications, it would distract me and I wouldn't – and it would pull me out of the flow. Another is – uh, lack of ba- what I'm calling lack of boundaries and not asking for support. I've talked about this a little bit already, but it deserves its own bullet point, which is making sure that because for some tasks, in order for you to get things done, you have to have other people support you. Like a common one is you have to do a lot of errands or you have a project you want to work on that takes like eight hours of concentration and you need your spouse to take care of the kids or the dogs or something. Or you need to ask for time off at work or something like that. And for some people, their procrastination is almost entirely due to the fact that they don't ask for support and they don't draw boundaries with other people. So that's also another important thing to think about. All right. The last uh, factor I want to talk about, which is a big one, which I'm sure some of you are thinking, why isn't he talking about this, is what I'm going to call executive function deficit or ADHD. So in the clinical world, some people actually don't like the term ADHD. They, they don't uh, dislike the term ADHD, but they find a more descriptive term than ADHD is executive function issues. Executive function is that part of the prefrontal cortex that is involved in impulse control, attention, planning, filtering out distractions. Um, the, the, and people with ADHD have uh, a deficit in this executive function meaning that they're much more easily distracted. They have a hard time planning in the future. They have a hard time directing their attention on the things that they, you know, they have a hard time uh, uh, concentrating on something that they need to concentrate on, and they have a hard time resisting impulses. The prefrontal cortex is involved in, a, a, is involved in those tasks of pay attention to that thing. Okay, there's a, there's a, there's a distraction. Don't pay attention to that thing. Uh, and you have 12 steps that you have to follow in order to get this task done. And the prefrontal cortex holds on to all 12 of those steps as you are achieving that task. Whereas people with ADHD, people with executive function deficit, have a much um, harder time with those things. In fact, for some people, it's just impossible. They just cannot 
direct their attention at something for that long. They cannot filter out distractions. They cannot hold on to 12 steps. And, but there are workarounds for people. So if, there, if you do have an executive function problem, there are solutions. But it's not easy, but you have to uh, do other things. The problem is is people with ADHD often are shamed so much growing up that they just believe they're a screw-up, and they, so they don't even try uh, to over or to have workarounds for ADHD. So some of the things that I've seen work for people, one is medication, which actually can help. But another is to have to write down all the steps. Okay, okay I have I have to uh, you know fix the faucet. All right, what are all the steps? And they just sit down and they they write out all the steps. Okay, I've got to go to the store. I've got to buy this thing. I've got to get this uh, tool. I've got to go into the bathroom, and then then they uh, just follow that that list. Because if they don't have that list of those things, or they might even ask someone else, can you write out all the tasks, all the steps involved in changing the faucet? And then they just do one step at a time. And when they have a distraction, they get distracted, but then they go back to their list and they're like, oh yeah, okay, where was I? Whereas people with AD, you know, people with ADHD, they need to do that because it's harder for them to hold on to all those ideas in their head. All right, the final factors I want to talk about are just like what I'm going to call other biological factors. And these are very important. Uh, these are having poor sleep or poor diet or no exercise or ongoing pain. These kinds of biological factors can absolutely cause people to procrastinate, not only because of lack of energy, but also because it's just a lot of preoccupation. If you're in constant pain, then you're going to have a hard time concentrating on something long enough to get something done. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of different treatments that you can uh, use for those factors that can contribute to um, uh, procrastination. All right, let's go on to treatment. So the literature will propose some treatments. It's mostly cognitive behavioral therapy, which um, does, shouldn't surprise anyone. And CBT can work, absolutely. But I find that uh, it's it often misses the mark for a lot of people. Y- you notice I just talked, I don't know how long I talked, and I only really told you the tip of the iceberg on each of those factors. There's a lot of factors. Some of them can be addressed by CBT. Some, uh, many of them cannot, right? If you have avoidant personality, for example, you're not going to fix that with CBT. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Um, if you have massive social anxiety, CBT can help, but it might be due to traumas growing up that need to be healed for. Anyway, so... Uh, my treatment of uh, procrastination is really quite a simple, very open-ended, flexible uh, protocol, which is, number one, assess the cause. This is very important and is often overlooked by people because people think generally that procrastination is caused by just the fact that you're not doing it or you're disorganized or something. And that might be the reason, but it's usually not. It's usually much more complex than that. So it's extremely important that you have a very strong accurate conceptualization as to why the person is procrastinating in the first place. And that can take months to figure out. It's not an easy thing to figure out. And if there's one thing that you walk away from this talk uh, with is that procrastination is extremely complex for most people. Most people who procrastinate chronically have extremely complex reasons as to why they're procrastinating. And we have to appreciate that. And if you're a procrastinator, you have to appreciate that in yourself, that it is probably extremely complicated and involves a lot of different things and involves things that are in your awareness and some things that are out of your awareness. And it might take a long time to figure those things out. But 
you cannot fix procrastination until you figure out why someone is procrastinating in the first place. Even then, once we know why someone is procrastinating, it can take years to treat that thing. It could take one session to treat that thing. It could also take years. So the second step is to treat the cause. For example, someone is a perfectionist and they need to raise their self-esteem. Someone has traumas regarding responsibility and we have to heal from those traumas. Someone has avoidant personality disorder and we have to actually heal their, their avoidant personality disorder. Someone has dependent personality disorder. These can take years and years of time. Someone has irrational belief systems. We have to rework those. Someone isn't very organized and they have unclear deadlines, these kinds of things. So uh, we work on all those things. And for some, it's short period of time in therapy and for many, it's long. And then the third aspect of treatment of procrastination is providing tips. So it's not just treating the cause, but it's also providing tips for non-procrastination, you know, organization, how to get motivated, how to get into the flow, how to have a proper workspace, you know, all those kinds of things. Okay. So I was going into the final part of this lecture and talk about how can you all avoid procrastination. And I've already gone over a lot of that, but let's kind of systematically go through all the different things that I uh, think about. One is, is you have to assess the importance of the task. Remember I talked earlier about uh, maybe this task isn't actually important to you. Do you really want to do this? So this depends on having a connection with the self. But you have to – so the very first thing, if you're procrastinating something, number one is assess how important this actually is to you. So I actually like the way I said Assess how important it actually is to you. Um, very important because if – you might find that right away you just discover – that it's actually not important to you. You're doing it to please someone else or you, you don't really want to do it. You could end your uh, process of treating your procrastination right then and there. I just figured out I don't want to do it. The second, if you do want to do it, let's go on to step two, which is to assess the viability of the goal. Is it viable? You know, saying, I'm going to renovate my bathroom in one day. You know, that's not viable. And so making sure that you have a viable goal. Number three is assessing and treating personality factors that might be contributing to procrastination. And this is what I was talking about earlier. Perfectionism, low self-esteem, distractibility, depression, anxiety, sense of self, dependency, avoidance, personality disorder, schemas, attachment, ADHD. Um, assess and treat those things. Now, this, this is a big step right here, but important to put in the system. Number four is to assess and to treat any traumas. This is – I'm breaking this out from uh, personality factors because traumas you could consider not a personality factor. Um, for example, I had a client who saw parents fighting a lot about money. They, they, her parents fought about money all the time. And whenever she as an adult would think about money, she would almost dissociate to some extent. And it was almost impossible for her to think about budgeting or planning for the future or thinking about buying a house because that involves a lot of thinking about money. And she even got to a point later in life where she would hire financial people to manage very simple things in her life because she had traumas around money in her family of origin. Number five is to assess and manage cognitive factors like irrational beliefs, time management, organization, that kind of thing. Number six is to assess and address veg time. So this is your time that you do to veg. This is a, I haven't talked about this yet, but this is a big part of, of procrastination. 
usually when we're procrastinating, not always, we are vegging out, right? We're watching TV, we're on our phones, we're doing something just kind of chilling, right? And so you have to assess and address it. Now, what most people will say is if you want to get things done, you have to get rid of your veg time. And that is actually not a good idea. Veg time is extremely important for us. Relaxing time, doing nothing is extremely important to our well-being, maybe even for our brain health. And there's other things that happen during veg time too. You might be with your spouse cuddling on the couch or something, and so that's not wasted time, right? So don't think about it as wasted time. Think about it as almost like sleep. We all need sleep, right? In order to function the next day, we need sleep. And no one would say, well, you know, you're procrastinating by sleeping at night. It's like, no, I need to sleep. Well, you could think about veg time as the same way. In order to function in life, you need X amount of time vegging every day. Maybe it's an hour, maybe it's five hours, whatever it is, figure it out for yourself and allocate that time well. You know, for some people, they might do veg time, but they watch TV that they're not really that interested in and it's not very fulfilling. So sometimes it's a matter of uh, of really organizing and thinking about how veg time actually enhances your life, what you actually need it for, what's the optimal veg time activity. So don't get rid of the veg time, but you want to figure it out what how it works. And you also want to situate it around your tasks. Now, maybe you could have one hour less every day of watching TV, which will give you time to actually work on that thing you've been pro- procrastinating. And maybe you incentivize the veg time by saying, once I get this task done, then I'll be able to do veg time. I do that sometimes. Number seven is you want to strengthen your super ego. And this is complicated because you might have to spend a lot of time um, integrating your super ego. Some people don't have a lot of integrated super egos. Our super egos are basically in, you know internalized voices from our parents, particularly if you had negative experiences with your parents and you have negative associations with your super super ego and every time you try to exert some sort of control over your id your uh, self will push the super ego out because you you don't like your parents and you don't like the way your super ego sounds in your mind so you might have to internalize a new set of super ego elements but ways to strengthen your super ego are to get organized to build habits have email reminders, to-do lists, this kind of thing, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the next thing that y'all want to do is to find your flow. You want to find out, okay, what is it you, you want? The next time you're in the flow and you're not forcing it, a task, you know, like you're you're doing yard work and you're just you're listening to podcasts and you're you're into it. There's you're not thinking about how long it's taking. You're just in the moment. You're just doing the thing. Kind of like me right now. I'm in the moment. I'm not thinking about the future. I'm not thinking about the past. I'm thinking about right here, right now. And then when that happens, think about how you got here. How did you get into the flow? What happened? How did you get to this place where the task, it just feels easy as you're doing it? You're not forcing it. What was it that got you there? Was it setting up the right workspace? Was it advocating for yourself? Was it getting good sleep? Was it taking your ADHD meds? Was it building up your self-esteem? Was it reminding yourself of why you're doing what you're doing? You know, whatever it is, but finding how you get to flow and recreating that is very important. Um, Another thing to think about is to assess and increase your energy in general, because having more energy 
is definitely a factor in getting things done. When I have energy, I get a lot of stuff done. Uh, I'll, uh, sometimes I'm just like, whoa, I got a lot of things done. And it's not even noon yet. How did I do that? And I'm like, well, geez, I have a lot of energy this morning. <laughs> Whereas other mornings you don't. And, you know, it's okay when you don't have energy, but trying to have a lifestyle so that you can have that energy. Now, I know some of y'all have, uh, you know, barriers to having that energy, which, you know, you can only do so much about. Another thing to think about is your circadian rhythm, your circadian rhythm. Some people are morning people. Some people are evening people. Some people are middle of the day people. Some people are sort of diffused throughout the day. Um, so it's very important to know when you have energy during the day and to capitalize on that. For me, I'm kind of an evening person. And so uh, I'm definitely a night owl. And um, a lot of the podcasts that I record happen late at night. Uh, I've recorded podcasts till like three in the morning because they, I know myself and I know that I'll be totally in the zone at that time. I'm less so, the older I get, the less sort of night owly I become. But, but um, so you just want to know when you're, so say you're a morning person and, well, no, say you're a night owl because that's usually the problem is you're a night owl. But your spouse is a morning person, and so your spouse wants to veg at night. Your spouse wants to watch a movie or just sit on the couch and hang out. But those are your prime working hours. So I don't know exactly what to do with that, but uh, maybe for you, you uh, it just is a random solution. You wake up later in the day. You kind of veg in the morning and the afternoon time because that's when your circadian rhythm is a little slower you hang out with your spouse, and then after your spouse goes to bed, that's when you get all your stuff done. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just uh, – as a suggestion. Another thing is to tell others about your goals. When you announce your goals to other people, research shows that you're more likely to follow through. Not always, and you want to watch you know, to not shame yourself, but it's just another th- tip. Another thing is to set up rewards, is to set up um, incentives to getting it done. And that can be pretty complicated. There is actually this app that I used a long time ago to to uh, put to manage my procrastination with a few things. Where, um, what was it called? I think it was called like Stick or something. I, I, it had a name that didn't make a lot of sense. But basically, what the site was was you entered your your credit card number, and then it it's you needed to check in every day or every week or something and tell the website if you had succeeded at what you said you were going to succeed. And if you didn't succeed, then it would donate money to the other political party in your country. <laughs> so, and you could you could sort of dial it in. It's just like, uh, you, you know, say you're a Democrat and you do not want to give money to the Republicans. And you set this thing up of like, if I don't complete this task by the end of next week, this thing will automatically send $100 to the Republicans, and I'll be damned if that's going to happen. So I'm going to get this thing done. So it's just another uh, sort of setup of, I guess, kind of a reward. At least it's an incentive. Number 12 is establish a functional way to put things off. This is very important. That uh, I haven't talked about this yet, but when it comes to uh, task management, it's not only important that you set up all the things that you talk about, but it's also important that you have a functional way of actually adaptively procrastinating. So say for me today, I have a lot of things on my to-do list. Let me actually look at my to-do list. Um, I have some like computer stuff I want to get done. I want to back up some of my files. 
I, I still so one thing I have been procrastinating on is actually writing the report from the survey that I sent to all the patrons. Some of you actually filled out the survey, and thank you a lot. But uh, I did a lot of work on the survey right up front, and you know spent a number of days kind of working over the data and, and writing a report. But then I got to the qualitative responses, and the, and there were, there's something like 600 different responses, and so it just takes a long. And I I included too many qualitative. Uh, questions, which some of you researchers would know that's a bad move. But so I've been putting that off. And I, I think I administered that survey like five months ago. And I, it's that item has been on my to-do list for a long time. So I don't know. It's later in the day right now. I don't know if I'm going to get all these things done. So how do I, how do I put these things off? But so, so there are, so there, there are functional ways to put this off and there are dysfunctional ways. A dysfunctional way for me to look at this to-do list and put, you know, because I'm not going to probably get to them today, is to shame myself and then I'll feel less about myself. Then I'll avoid my to-do list altogether because my to-do list shames me. Another dysfunctional way is to just say, well, I'm a procrastinator and I never get anything done. You know, those kinds of dysfunctional ways. Um, Or I could just erase it from my to-do list altogether, even though I really want to do it. An adaptive way of procrastinating is I have a different column in my to-do list where I can move things to that says, we'll get to this. So I have three main columns. I have get to this now, get to this soon, and get to this later. And then I have an, another column. It's like get to this eventually in your lifetime. <laughs> like write a book about grief, that kind of thing. So I could just move these items to the soon or even the later part. So it's on the list. I'll get it done eventually. I will. But I'm just not going to get it done today. And so I'm procrastinating but I'm not beating myself up about it. I'm not scratching it off the list. I'm staying in contact with my to-do list. Um, and uh, and maybe even I should, and sometimes I do this where I'll actually take it off my to-do list. This is just my own little weird system. And I'll put it on the calendar. So exa- for example, with the code, sur- let's just do this right now. So the code survey responses, working on the survey, I'm going to take it completely off my to-do list, which feels good, but I'm going to add it to a particular day of the week coming up. Uh, so it looks like on Wednesday I have some time. So I'm actually going to put this as an item to do on Wednesday. So I'm going to do this next week on Wednesday. And it's and I'm going to get it. I put it in my calendar. So I'm going to get an email notification uh, in the morning. And it's going to say code survey responses. When I get an email like that, it tells me you got to do this today. Or at least you thought you would have time to do this today. So, uh, so that's a, a functional way of procrastinating. So you got to make sure you have a system of procrastinating in a way that doesn't cause you to chronically procrastinate, if that makes sense. And then the final thing is make it a habit. Baby steps. Some of you out there, you know, 20% is an accurate number, are chronic procrastinators. Don't bite off more than you can chew. <laughs> Because that'll cause you to procrastinate about cutting back on your procrastination, which you might kind of know about. You know, to work on to work on reducing your procrastination, you have to do tasks to reduce your procrastination, which you also might procrastinate. So you got to start slow. You got baby steps. Every habit is developed very, very slowly, and it's it's okay to want the big goal and to have that in the future, but just one step at a time. Like if you're thinking about making a change in any aspect of your life, whether it's procrastination or not, just do one small thing this week. Just one. 
You have 50 things you want to do, but just do one, make it a habit, and then eventually it will just become a thing that you just do. And then take another baby step. And then in five years, you will no longer be a procrastinator, that kind of thing. All right. That comes to the end. And as I said, email in and make sure you put it in the in the title or the subject, the, you know, the one question zone. Go to our website and click on the contact button and uh, say, you know, follow up to a procrastination episode. And then um, the pod wife will categorize it and I will read those emails in a future episode because I, I'm really curious. You know, when as I was going through all these things, I talked about a lot of things. What resonated with you? Uh, what are you going to do? What is your experience? I guess what I'm really curious about is, as I went over all those different factors, you tell me why you procrastinate. You know, I, hopefully you got some insight or you have some insight into this is my procrastination behavior and this is why I do those things and this is how I'm, I've tried to fix it and here's how I think I might try to fix it in the future. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Thank you.